The Honorable, the Judges of the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit. Oyez, oyez, oyez. All persons having any manner or form of business before the Honorable, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit are admonished to give their attention for the court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. Okay, thank you. Uh, we're ready to proceed in the case of 17-3, uh, United States versus Dylan Roof. Uh, Ms. Merchandani, you're the first arguer, right? Yes, thank you. Please proceed. Okay. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the court. My name is Sapna Merchandani, and I'm here with my colleagues Alexandra Yates and Margaret Farrand, appearing on behalf of appellant Dylan Roof. This morning, I would like to address the competency issues that are presented in Roman numeral sections three, four, and five of the opening brief. Afterwards, my colleague, Ms. Yates, will address the self-representation issue under McCoy versus Louisiana in section eight of the brief, and then the future dangerousness issue in section 15 of the brief. If time remains, Ms. Farrand, Ms. Yates, and I are prepared to address any other issues um, about which the court has questions. <clears throat> so turning to competency, we've raised several challenges to the district court's handling of the issues related to Mr. Roof's competency to stand trial, including a challenge to the merits of the court's decision finding him competent to proceed. But for purposes of argument this morning, I would like to focus the court's attention on the district court's exclusion of critical mental health evidence from the second competency hearing before before, I'm sorry, sentence competency hearing before sentencing. Um, this was section five of the brief. The court barred testimony and reports from four mental health experts establishing that Mr. Roof suffered from a delusional belief that his trial did not matter because he would be freed by white nationalists after they prevailed in a race war, but only as long as he appeared pure, which he defined as not suffering from mental illness. Now the court in blocking the evidence committed an error of law by applying the law of the case doctrine, which applies to legal rulings, not factual determinations, um, and blinded itself to evidence on the fundamental issue of whether, in fact, Mr. Roof was suffering from a delusional belief or was acting simply out of prejudice. And um, can I ask you a question, Ms. Mershandani, yes. and that, about the standard of review to start with? Um, what what's this what do you, what's your contention about the standard of review here on these competency decisions? Well, there's three different competency um, issues. The uh, first two are well, two of them are procedural, which is an abuse of discretion standard, um, which is the the failure to give more time for the first hearing and the exclusion of evidence at the second hearing. But for the substantive decision, it is a clear error standard. Okay, so uh, on that point, um, since there's conflicting evidence about competence, I mean, you'd agree that the record contains evidence uh, from experts saying, oh, he's competent. If, there's, if it's a clear mm -hmm. error standard on that substantive component and there's conflicting evidence, how, how can you win? Uh, how can there be clear error? There can be clear error as this court found in um, U.S. versus Antone and U.S. versus Wooden. And in both of those cases, they didn't deal with competency. They dealt with whether or not a defendant was a sexually dangerous person under the Adam Walsh Act. And in both cases, there was expert testimony on which the court relied to find the person either dangerous or not. But the court 
didn't address substantial contrary evidence uh, going the other direction. And that is what happened here. So yes, there was one, you said experts who said he was competent. There was only one Dr. Ballinger who had never performed a competency exam before and whose um, evaluation was inconsistent and actually in some ways supported our um, argument that there was a- Are you asserting that, that uh, uh, Dr. Ballinger was not competent to be an expert? No, I'm not saying that. I, okay. I'm, I'm not. So if, if Judge Gergel hears Dr. Ballinger and he hears Dr. Ballinger say, and I think what, what he said was that uh, Roof was uh, not controlled by mental illness, but uh, had a logical extension of his political and social beliefs in, in uh, doing what he did. If, if Judge Gergel hears those things from somebody who's competent to render an expert testimony, on what basis would we say that's a clearly erroneous judgment by the district court. It was clearly erroneous because it, the court did not address any of the substantial contrary evidence, which was five experts who said that Roof had a history of suffering from delusions, both race war delusions and somatic delusions, medical records um, documenting years of suffering from these delusions, Dr. Ballinger admitting that he hadn't reviewed all of those records, um, never addressing them. So Dr. Ballinger's opinion is worth um, what it is, but it only uh, he only addressed what Mr. Roof told him after November 7th and before November 22nd, which was during the period of time when Mr. Roof had gotten wind that his mental illness would be um, publicized, which would thwart his eventual rescue by white nationalists. And at that point, he started covering up all of the delusions that he had previously spoken about. So the court committed clear error by ignoring nine months of statements that are very consistent, documented by five different experts and defense counsel. Defense counsel, um, three attorneys did a sworn affidavit talking about just ignored it. The, the district court just ignored it. It's not it's not that the district court's opinion can be read as saying, I believe he's competent. I believe the I believe this expert. Well, you, you think you think that you think that the record is so clear that the district court just ignored it, that it constitutes clear. Error. That's the that's the legal position you got, right? Well, my legal position is that it ignored it actually at the second hearing where it, the court declared it was not going to consider any of these medical reports. So yes, that is that it was an abuse of discretion to block the evidence and it resulted in a clear error because it substantively ignored um, evidence. At the first hearing, it didn't exclude evidence, but what the court said was after hearing from all of these experts, Ballinger, um, Stasekel, Maddox, um, and uh, uh, Ballinger. Yeah. The court said only one defense expert said that Mr. Roof is incompetent and, and relied on Maddox. Um, but that was not the case. Lofton, Dr. Lofton submitted an affidavit saying that Mr. Roof did not fear death sentence because he did not believe he would really be executed. He emphatically believed he would be rescued after the race war. Um, Dr. Stasekel said the same thing. He said, um, although he needed more time to reach the ultimate issue of whether or not Mr. Roof was competent, he had deep concerns because he saw evidence of a schizophrenia spectrum disorder um, based on this history of delusional beliefs that he had had um, and that he did not seem to take seriously the threat of death. Um, and the court did not 
address any of those in its first decision. In the second decision, it didn't even consider them. Um, well, counsel, let me interrupt you. I've, I've got to interrupt you. I don't mean to, to interrupt uh, uh, Judge Jordan there, but but the judge said, Joint Appendix at 5529, he, quote, read every one of their experts, and that's at the second hearing, right? He says he read every one of them. Uh, he also says that Ballinger reviewed all those reports and discussed them with Ruth. And I know that he makes the statement about law of the case, and that's probably better applied to legal conclusions. I get that. But what about his blanket statements about reading it? And these experts did not examine him, right, between the first and second hearings? So help me, help me with these simple facts. Those, the defense experts did not examine him between the first and second hearing, but the reports con, um, contained historical information about the, the history of his delusional beliefs, which is very important in deciding if somebody is competent. It's not a snapshot of what the person looks like today. It's, it's a factor, but what also matters is the history of the person's, the person's medical history and mental. Well, well, wasn't the district court judge concerned, and maybe rightly so, that, that the defense was just looking for a do-over? that there was no new information. This was just wanting another bite at the apple. There wasn't the, as Judge Benton pointed out, there wasn't uh, new information that was being brought to bear from re-examination. This was just the experts coming back with, as you say, providing maybe some more historical information, but rendering uh, additional opinions. And the judge said, you know, perhaps perhaps the wording was inartful, but speaking in terms of law of the case, can that be understood as the district court judge merely saying, we've been down this path and we're not going down this path again because I've rendered my decision? Well, <clears throat> that goes back to um, what Judge Benton asked, which is, <clears throat> excuse me, the comment that the court made that it had already read all of those reports. Um, it couldn't have read all of those reports. It said, I read all of these at the first hearing and we've already been through it. The reports did not exist at the time of the first hearing. They were only completed on December 28th and December 30th, um, just before the January 2nd hearing. Same with Dr. Ballinger, who said that he had considered all of those reports and took them into account at the first hearing. Again, the reports did not exist. He later corrected himself and clarified that he didn't because he couldn't have. Now. Yes, both the court and Dr. Ballinger said they read those reports, but there's no evidence in that from the court's opinion. The court's opinion focuses on what Ballinger said and what Mr. Roof himself said. And Well, we could probably fairly take Judge Gergel at his word if he says, I read them, couldn't we? We, we could, but... Okay, so if he read them, then isn't it fair to, to believe he also considered them? Not that he read them and immediately blocked them from his mind, but he read them and he considered them. No, because in Anton, um, or actually it was in, in Wooden. Um, no, I'm sorry, it was Anton. Uh, the court mentioned evidence that was not substantively weighed. It, it talked about evidence that was, was heard. So yes, even assuming the court read the reports, what matters is that the evidence was not weighed against each other. So what, what this court said in Anton is, um, the government contends that the district court's consideration was sufficient because it adopted the factual findings. Even though the district court acknowledged its awareness of the testimony, that by itself does not indicate it that it adequately considered its impact. So yes, the court said, I read the reports, but if you look at the court's opinion, there's no reference to, and, and it wasn't just a repeat, Dr. Moberg, 
um, submitted a report, a, a very detailed report that um, contained neuropsych testing that had not been presented to the first hearing and craniofacial measurement testing showing disruptions in Mr. Roof's um, cranium that, that indicated that he was suffering from schizophrenia and related disorders. He said that he had a, a frontal system, a brain dysfunction um, with psychosis spectrum features uh, and that he suffered core components of a well, nobody's suggesting that you don't have evidence uh, in support of the position that you took. At least I don't think so. And I didn't even understand the district court to be suggesting you didn't have evidence in support of the position that you took. I understood the district court's position to be uh, the court uh, was more persuaded that uh, Mr. Roof was competent and that he was not competent and that he was persuaded on that after having uh, read the reports and in the first instance, having heard the experts. So uh, you're, you're, you certainly got evidence you could keep reciting, but the, uh, I'm, I'm trying to circle back on the standard of review here and the clear error point. And, and I guess your assertion is because it wasn't laid out in in some detail in uh, in a written opinion. It, it that shows a lack of weighing, and that represents clear error. Is that it? The lack of weighing, and in this case, um, yes, the lack of weighing is what happened in Anton and Wooden, and that gave the district gave this court. Um, it didn't have any faith that they were that the evidence was substantively considered. So you can say, I've admitted these reports, I've looked at this, but if you look at the court's actual decision, he quotes at length from Dr. Ballinger, who had not at that point, um, had not spoken to Mr. Roof before his, his competency was in question. So at that point, there's evidence that he was masking his mental illness to be saved. Um, also, Dr. Ballinger had not had the uh, benefit of having any of the um, evaluations by Dr. Lofton or Maddox or Mobert. Now, that's important because at the second hearing, one of the reports that the court rejected and refused to consider was Dr. Maddox's, in which she went back and compared all the different evaluations and talked about how Dr. Ballinger's evaluation had glaring holes because it ignored this history of delusional beliefs. So Dr. Ballinger- oh, hold, hold on, because when you talk about a history of delusional beliefs, um, is there a conflict here a little bit in what you're saying? Because part of what I, I thought in your reply brief that you, you were faulting the government for relying on Bruce's uh, late 2016 statements about a race war only after he learned about what council was gonna do, a sort of a assertion that uh, there was a focus uh, on things that uh, happened when when Mr. Roof decided, oh, they're going to embarrass me, and then he started doing something. But but the the court had before it uh, evidence from that very first uh, confession, right when the FBI was talking to him, and he said, "I'm not delusional. Uh, I don't think that uh, something like what I did could start a race war or anything like that." Uh, I mean, he was. He was in that very first interview saying to the FBI agents, you know, I wanted to make a statement, but I really, I didn't think I was going to start a race war. I, and I thought that would be pretty terrible, et cetera. Um, now, uh, he said, I think there might be one eventually. I guess, 
I guess my question to you is, there's evidence going right back to the start, right, with the arrest that indicates him taking a position that says, I'm, I'm not delusional about what's going to happen. I know what's likely to happen to me. I wanted to do something dramatic, and I did. Um, are, are those things in conflict with what you're saying when you say, oh, the government's just focusing on this one thing, on this one part after he thinks he's going to be able to hide his, his mental illness? No, it's, it's not inconsistent at all. Uh, what, what Mr. Roof said at his confession was, I wanted to increase tensions. I wanted to alert white people to the fact that they're under attack and will be eliminated if they don't fight back. And he said, I didn't think I was going to start. I know that that wouldn't have started a race war. But he said, inevitably, um, tensions would increase such that there was this inevitable war going to happen. Um, and what he said to Dr. Moberg, which was not um, considered by the court, was that it, as of February, he was 80% sure that this race war would happen and he would be freed. And now does um, that make him, does that make him uh, somebody not competent to stand trial? It makes him a, make, certainly indicates he's a person who's full of hate. It certainly indicates that he's a person who is uh, 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 horribly motivated. But does is is it maybe the best way to answer this question is is having uh, despicable opinions and forecasts the same thing as incompetency in the legal sense to stand trial to be able to assist in one's own defense? No, it, it is not hatred. It, it is not his opinions. It is a delusion. Um, now, a delusion by definition is a fixed false belief that cannot be moved by objective contrary evidence. Counsel, and what, I've got to jump in, and I'm sorry to interrupt your even your sentence. I hate to do that, but you use the word fixed. Now, at times with these experts, he laughs at some of this stuff, right? I, well, the only time he laughed was with Dr. Ballinger. At that point, he was trying to present himself as not mentally ill. Right. Uh, but that's my point. It doesn't seem fixed when he has several of these. And of course, we all know what his IQs tests are. They're very good, as you know. Uh, so, so I think that the word fix there, you might want to dwell on for a moment, because I think that that is the key to your argument, or it's undoing. Go ahead. It is. Um, <clears throat> I don't think it's the key to undoing. I, I think the evidence shows that until November 7th, he consistently said the same thing, which is, there is going to be a race war. Um, this is leads back to Dr. Lofton's report, which was omitted from the second hearing, another uh, instance of the abuse of discretion, where people who were interviewed, people who had known Mr. Roof long before he committed the crime, and he would talk about a racial revolution and the certainty of white people going extinct. His stepmother said that he was getting a gun to prepare for the coming revolution. So everything that he said up until November 7th is of the same piece. It is preparation for something horrible that was going to happen and that he wanted to help because it would wake white people up. It's despicable. Is, is every, is every neo-Nazi incompetent to stand trial? No. Because that's what it sounds like you're saying. You sound like, it sounds like what you're saying is if somebody believes that there will, and, and Ruth's exact words were, there probably will be a race war eventually. That's what he said to the FBI. That's a quote. If everyone who holds that belief is incompetent to stand trial, then 
isn't there a little bit of a problem that we've we've taken a whole range of people who might convict uh, uh, commit violent acts out of the system because they just can't be prosecuted because they're all incom they're all delusional and incompetent. No, I think the word delusional gets thrown around um, and it's used colloquially. This is actually um, a medical medically defined term that multiple experts said applied to him because it he acted on it. It wasn't just a belief. It wasn't just an overvalued racist view. He acted upon it and he was convinced. We know that because he tried to fire his counsel on the eve of trial and wrote a letter to prosecutors. And, and let's be really clear about how unprecedentedly bizarre this is. He wrote a letter to the prosecutors on the eve of trial telling them that the attorneys that he had been working with for 16 months were liars and that nothing they said could be trusted. And then he told Dr. Ballinger that he felt like he was sitting at the wrong table in the courtroom. He felt like he was on the side of the prosecutors. His delusion was so fixed and so strong that he thought it better to be on the side of the prosecutors and to have a clear picture of mental illness for the future white nationalists than it was to persuade even a single juror that his life was worth sparing. Now, that is neo-Nazi. So, so it's not, I mean, it, it might be, difficult for you or for me to be thinking uh, I would I would value uh, my public reputation above my life maybe but that's 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 what you're attacking as being delusional that he believes I'm not delusional I'm not mentally ill I don't want a mental illness defense I'm absolutely opposed to that my lawyers won't listen to me when I say I don't want that defense they continue to press it and I I'm not happy about it, and and I'm trying to grapple with this. Is it okay. is it not possible to disagree with your own lawyers on a defense strategy without having your lawyers declare you that look, this is further proof that you're delusional. You don't agree with us. You must be crazy. No, and and this is exactly we are not saying that at all. That is that is taking the argument far too far. What the district court said very similarly was, if every defendant who disagreed with his attorneys. Um, <clears throat> decided he didn't want to cooperate anymore, was delusional, nobody would ever be tried. That is not this case. We have here a history, and not just um, the year before the crime, but a lifetime history of neurological impairment and psychiatric disorders, obsessive compulsive disorders, paranoia, um, grandiosity. He believed that he was going to save the white race. These are all things that even Dr. Ballinger noted. He did not label them grandiosity and paranoia, but he, these had been with Dylan, his, Mr. Roof, his entire life. Um, when he was eight years old, he thought the clouds moving were sending him a message that something bad was going to happen. When he was even younger, he had to do things precisely three times. He had to kiss his mother three times. He had to say he loved her three times. Um, this now, all of those do not make him delusional. No, I'm not saying that they do. And they don't they, make him incompetent either, right? I mean, you've just listed a whole bunch of things that are mental illnesses which, or, or signs of mental illness. But exactly. you'd have to agree, wouldn't you, that being mentally ill is not the same thing as being legally incompetent. Exactly. Burkett and versus Angelone and Beck versus Angelone are cases in which the person was mentally, severely mentally ill, but not incompetent. What makes a person incompetent is when they are unable to reasonably consult with a lawyer with a rational, um, the rational sense of, of what is happening. Now, the irrationality is the basis of 
Mr. Roof's refusal to um, consult with counsel. Well, it's a, it, his, his refusal was not that he wouldn't consult with counsel. It's that he wouldn't consult with them and help them and aid them in making and mounting a mental illness defense. Isn't that, isn't that where the breakdown was? Can you point us to something in the record that shows a breakdown in communication that was not related to the defense counsel's desire to mount an insanity defense? Well, yeah, the break, the rupture happened when, when Mr. Roof learned from Dr. Dietz that there was going to be a mental illness defense. And that was the rupture. At that point, he stopped cooperating at all. So, so, so I, I'll repeat the question. Is there any other thing in the record that shows he was not cooperative? He was not willing to engage. He was not actually talking with them until the trust broke down from his perspective, apparently, because there was a decision we're going to go with an insanity defense. And he didn't agree with that. Was there, is there anything else that shows he wasn't cooperative or able to assist? This wasn't an insanity defense. What, what the attorneys were going to do was present mental health evidence as mitigation, mitigation. in the death penalty phase. Right. Um, no, yes. Mr. Roof um, shunned all mitigation evidence. So he had family members, a pastor, people who had known him his whole life, who had known that he was nonviolent and that he was strange. I mean, every single person who had known Mr. Roof, there were 80 interviews summarized in Dr. Lofton's report, which was again, excluded from the second hearing. 80 interviews with people, teachers, coaches, ministers who had known him his entire life, who said that he was a loner, he was weird, he was robotic, he was numb. Now, all of these things, but he was gentle until he went through this prodromal phase of this schizophrenia, of this psychotic spectrum disorder, according to all the people closest to him. In the two years before he committed the crime, between 2013 and 15, is when he became even more isolated and committed to this idea this, that he had a special mission, which is what he told his counsel, that he had a special mission and that only great people in history have a mission. And he was one of those people and he was going to save the white race. Now, that was a break from how he had been before. But again, this is these are all part of what makes him incompetent. So it's not it's not just a delusion. It's not a paranoia. It's not OCD. It's not all these things. It's the full picture, which is where the medical experts came in and said, this is an entire rich picture of a lifetime of, of, of neurological impairments and psychiatric illness, which coalesced at right before the trial with this break. And, and it was a sign that he was incompetent. Now the incompetence says you cannot rationally assist. And there are cases in which yeah. Lafferty versus Cook is one in which the 10th Circuit said the defendant was so um, besieged by his his delusion that. Yeah, and, and, and that was the case with hearing voices and things like right. that. Right? I mean, this, but but you've cited cases that we've looked at where there are people who are clearly psychotic. Uh, and in this case, there's a guy who's clearly got a whole range of significant mental illnesses and issues but the record seems to indicate that he's very bright he's he absolutely understands what's going on in the courtroom and what's and and he's working with his lawyers until he feels rightly or wrongly he feels betrayed by them and knows they're going to make him out to be a, a person who is delusional and and crazy and he doesn't want that and I've, I have looked and I've been asking you for it because I can't see anything else in the record that indicates that he's not helpful, he's not engaged, he's not working with them until 
he believes I can't trust them anymore because despite what I want them to do, they're going to they're going to put on mitigation evidence to show I'm nuts. And I don't want that. Well, now, reason- if I've missed something, because this record is enormous, mm-hmm. if I've missed something, that's why I'm asking the question I'm asking again. If there's mm-hmm. something else in this record that shows, no, here's another point, another time, another issue on which there's a record that shows he didn't, he couldn't help, he wasn't able to help, he didn't want to help. But it all seems to center around this one point, which is, he says, I am not mentally ill, crazy, un, you know, I'm not delusional. And the assertion you've got, which is he doesn't want to help his lawyers, and and that is consistent with mental illness, and therefore he's incompetent. No, no, that that is not that is not our argument at all. That because he is disagreeing with his lawyers, you said all those things about the person being clearly psychotic because he was hearing voices. Um, Mr. Roof also talked about hearing voices. We ha- we do not have just a defendant who is not willing to work with counsel. We have a defendant who is guided all of his decisions, according to Dr. Ballinger, are driven by the delusional belief that he will be rescued as long as he appears a pure and unblemished specimen, a perfect specimen. Otherwise, he would be subjected in the future to sterilization or elimination. Now, these are exactly the words that Dr. Ballinger used. It is not that he um, opposed mental illness, a mental illness defense or mitigation because he thought it would bring stigma or a program. He, he was opposed to it because it would thwart his rescue. That was the core. You can't separate the two. Um, even the court agreed that the, the reason he didn't want this was because he wanted to be saved in the future. If the, the timing, did the timing of this make any difference, Ms. Mershandani? There was a... The, the court seemed to be concerned that there was uh, this second competency hearing request coming very close to trial, uh, that uh, this was going to cause a delay. There was some sense that, you know, maybe there was uh, playing for time going on here, or at least one could read the district court's concern to include that. Is it is it unfair or improper for uh, a district court to be paying attention to the to the schedule, to to not allowing for delay that would uh, prevent uh, the orderly uh, trial uh, process to go forward. No, it's it's important and it is a factor and is a factor to be balanced again with other factors. And the South South Carolina District Court, in in simple cases such as drug possession, when a a defendant seemed to be incompetent, even on the eve of trial, the average amount of time was four months to prepare for a competency hearing. Now, counsel had two weeks. So yes, that that is a factor. But a person's constitutional right to be mentally competent at their trial, Dusky and Drope, the Supreme Court discussed that you don't just want a defendant to be physically present, but they have to be mentally present. Let and me the, let me interrupt you. Uh, that does conclude your time. Okay. But if Judge Jordan wants to inquire further, you certainly may, Judge Jordan. No, I know. I know we've got a lot. We have a, a whole lot of issues to cover here, and I do appreciate uh, uh, Ms. Mershandani's uh, assistant in fielding my questions. Okay, see, seeing no more questions from the panel, thank you for your argument. Ms. Yates? Good morning. May it please the court. My name is Alexandra Yates, and I propose to address two issues with the court today. First, I'd like to discuss why, if Mr. Roof was competent to stand trial, he also had the right to decide 
whether to portray himself as mentally ill, and he should not have been forced to waive counsel and represent himself at jury selection and the penalty phase of his death penalty trial in order to make that decision. And that is the point at Roman numeral eight of our opening brief uh, related to McCoy versus Louisiana. Second, I propose to discuss why this court should remand for a new penalty phase because Mr. Roof's jurors were misled to believe that he posed a, a risk of future dangerousness because he might incite others to violence through use of the mails. It is undisputed that prisons have basic security measures that could prevent this sort of thing from happening, but Mr. Roof was precluded from telling jurors that fact. And that is the future dangerousness point at Roman numeral 15 of our opening brief. With the court's permission, I will begin with the McCoy issue. Your honors, Mr. Roof, a then 22-year-old with undisputed mental impairments and no experience in the criminal justice system, didn't want to represent himself at his capital trial and never should have been forced to. He waived counsel for one reason and one reason alone, and that was to prevent his attorneys from presenting mental health evidence that he thought would ruin his reputation and undermine his chances, uh, excuse me, and undermine his, the reasons for committing his crime. Now, the district court, relying on then existing case law, told Mr. Roof he could have counsel or he could exclude mental health evidence, but he could not have it both ways. We now know from the Supreme Court's post-trial decision in McCoy versus Louisiana that this was wrong. Representation by counsel is not an all or nothing proposition and a defendant need not forego the assistance of experienced attorneys in order to remain master of his own defense with the right to choose the objective of that defense, be it contesting guilt or avoiding the opprobrium that comes with admitting stigmatizing facts. Because Mr. Roof's main objective was to avoid admitting what he viewed as stigmatizing impairments, his attorneys could not interfere with it. Ms. Yates, yes. can, you, can you dive into McCoy a little bit with us? What's What's the difference between um, tactical decisions and defense objectives? The tactical fundamental divide is a difficult one. And I think Justice Scalia talks about this a little in his uh, Gonzalez concurrence. Um, what we know from McCoy is that um, there are decis decisions beyond the right to um, waive jury, the right to plead guilty, the right to take an appeal, the right to testify. Um, that courts have long talked about as fundamental, um, that are also fundamental. And one of those is the right to choose the objective of one's defense. And what the court in McCoy says is um, the objective of, of your defense can also be to preclude the admission or to pr preclude your your side, your defense, from admitting certain facts. Like, and, like that you're guilty, right? I mean, that was McCoy, right? McCoy is... The defendant doesn't want to admit guilt. The, the the lawyer decides admitting guilt is a good idea. It might avoid the death penalty, and so admits guilt repeatedly. And that's that's what moves the Supreme Court in McCoy, isn't it? Well, McCoy um, is about factual factual guilt, not a concession of guilt, uh, and it, it's about admitting certain facts. And we know this for a few reasons. Committed the murders. I mean, the the defense lawyer said three times in McCoy. The guy committed the murders, committed the murders, committed the murders. So that that seems to be, uh, and this is why I'm engaging with you on this, it seems to be that the Supreme Court is saying, look, there are some things that are just so fundamental that they are not exclusively the control of defense counsel. The defendant's got some say in it. 
but they're tactical decisions that are that are for defense counsel and defense counsel alone. So help us understand or help me understand. I don't know why I'm, Judges Benton and Gilman may have this thoroughly in mind and understand, but help me understand uh, what is it about uh, a, a mental illness defense or mental illness uh, mitigation kind of defense that is equivalent to something as fundamental as uh, admitting uh, uh, guilt, admitting that you, you've done the actus reus. What's, how are those two things the same? Right, so I'll invite the court to the Ninth Circuit's decision in United States versus Reed. And there, um, they rejected uh, re rejected the, the position that McCoy is just about admitting guilt. Um, and this is at page 721 of the opinion. So the Reed case was about the defendant's right to refuse an insanity defense. And this defendant in Reed, um, he admitted his factual guilt, right? The point that uh, Mr. McCoy wanted to contest. He admitted the actus reus of the, of the, of the crime, the killing. Um, but he nonetheless objected to an insanity defense. And he objected to it for the reason that he did not want to depict himself as mentally ill. He did, he, did, he did not agree that he was insane, and he did not want his side in this adversarial process to be saying that he was. Uh, and what the Reed court says is, um, sure, we shouldn't, um, choosing whether to present an insanity defense uh, is in some ways tantamount to a guilty plea. And so we should allow defendants to make the choice for that reason. But that's not all of it, because even in a case where the defendant uh, admits his factual guilt, he still uh, he still may have concerns about the grave personal consequences separate and apart from the admission of factual guilt that can come with an admission of mental illness. And Reed cites a, a number of cases, uh, both state and federal, that have long recognized um, the potentially stigmatizing nature of admitting uh, mental illness. And um, and I think this is consistent with McCoy because McCoy. So, well, speak directly. Speak directly to the the government's argument in their uh, answering brief that McCoy did not hold that whatever issue is viewed as most important to the defendant becomes the defense objective that counsel must follow. That doesn't matter how strongly the defendant feels about an issue. That doesn't convert a tactical choice into the kind of defense objective that has the weight that uh, admitting guilt does and which was the centerpiece of McCoy. We, we agree with that, Your Honor. Um, not every decision becomes a defendant's decision. Um, what we know from McCoy uh, is a couple of things. And McCoy says this at, uh, at page 1508. We know that the decision um, not to admit factual guilt is so fundamental that that belongs with the defendant. We also know that it is a fair defendant's objective to wish to avoid, avoid above all else the opprobrium that comes with admitting certain facts. Um, yeah. So how do we square how do we square this with the argument we've just heard from Ms. Mershandani, which is it's it is so bizarre the the defendant's attitude toward this as to as to constitute delusion and a fixed delusion at the level of mental incompetence to stand trial uh, uh, with the notion that this is something he was absolutely entitled to do and follow. So much so that allowing the court putting him to the choice of you can't make your lawyers forego this 
you got to do, you got to take this on your own if you want to make the lawyers forego it because the lawyers are committed to this. How, how do those two arguments work together? Or are they just kind of inconsistent? We have to accept that. Well, it's not that they're inconsistent. The McCoy argument presumes a competent defendant, right? So I, I agree, of course, with Ms. Merchandani that Mr. Roof, uh, the court should not have found him competent. But once it did, once he was a competent defendant, that came with certain fundamental rights or rights that he he had the the choice to, to decide um, what to do and how to be master of his own defense. I mean, McCoy uses this sweeping language about being master of, of one's own defense. And so one of those rights, uh, and we think it squarely fits under McCoy's program language, is the choice whether to depict oneself as mentally ill. And again, Reed cites all of these cases and talks about um, why someone might not want to do that and why that might be fundamental to a person. So this isn't some sweeping, uh, you know, we're not asking the court to endorse a broad uh, a broad reading of McCoy, like the courts in um, the Taylor case. Yeah, so let me interrupt you because yes. you said the magic word for me is a broad reading of McCoy. Yes. Now, of course, defense lawyers know it better than I'll ever know it. The things that McCoy lists that are for his client. Uh, guilty, jury trial, testify, and no appeal. Uh, quick summary of, the, of a war, but that's enough. Uh, but you get my point. But what about the four circuits cases like Chapman uh, and Sexton versus Grinch, which is a capital sentencing case? What about those two cases that don't they kind of bind this panel? Um, they don't bind this panel, and also they're not on point. And so let me let me address both of those points. Well, what about Sexton versus French's presentation of evidence in capital sentencing as a classical tactical decision left to capital? Okay, go ahead. Well, so Sexton versus French, of course, it was a 2254 case, so a, a very different procedural posture and and inquiry. Um, and the and and the question there was whether the attorney um, needed to consult. The the, the defendant was com complaining um, not that he had disagreed, but that the attorney hadn't consulted. So this was really more like the Florida versus Nixon line of cases that the Supreme Court distinguished in McCoy. Chapman, of course, was about what we would absolutely agree is a day-to-day -day tactical decision, whether to accept an offer of a mistrial. So we don't think that they are on point. But beyond I th that... I thought Chapman de dealt with calling witnesses, too. Didn't Chapman deal with calling witnesses also? Uh, Your Honor, I, I apologize. I don't recall that point. I believe... Okay, and, 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 and my notes may be wrong. My notes may be wrong. Suppose for a second it did say calling witnesses is a classical tactical decision left to counsel even when the client disagrees. Part of that's a quote, part of it's not. Uh, but suppose that is it, it, Chapman, for the purposes of this question. Uh, what do you say about Chapman and its effect on this panel? Well, I don't think that affects the, the overarching question of what's a fundamental decision, because, of course, the defendant also has the right to choose whether or not to testify, and that can be seen as a question of, of calling witnesses. So we know that there are some decisions. You well, that's a that's a pretty unique thing, right? Right to testify or not testify. I mean, there's plenty of case law out there that says just what Judge Benton said, which is tactical decisions about who to call and not to call are just that. They're tactical decisions. That's different from the right to remain silent or not to remain silent. There's, wouldn't you agree there's a fundamental difference between defendant testifying and decisions about other people being called or not called? We think that a defendant has the right to just define his overarching objective, and that is a fundamental decision. Now, once he has defined that objective, it is within the attorney's discretion to decide what witnesses to call and not to call, but the attorney cannot over undermine that overarching objective. And I would also just, in, in, in response to Judge Benton's question, 
point the court to um, the Smith versus Stein case out of the Fourth Circuit, where this court said McCoy, you know, just kind of fundamentally rewrote the rules on the balance between uh, attorney and client. So I think that the reasoning of Sexton and Chapman um, has been undermined by McCoy. Really, they take an outdated view of uh, counsel as, as the master, where instead it's the defendant who's the master and counsel who is the assistant. Well, the master as the final objective. The fundamental the the final objective. I mean, in the sentencing phase, wasn't the fundamental objective, presumably, to avoid the sentence of death and get life instead? I mean, that's got to be the fundamental objective of the sentencing phase, isn't it? Well, that would seem reasonable, Your Honor, but that is precisely what the Supreme Court rejected in McCoy, because, of course, Mr. McCoy's attorney thought that as well. Mr. McCoy wanted to avoid the death penalty, uh, and, and his attorney said, that's okay, that's your overarching objective. I now get to call all of the shots about how we get there. And the Supreme Court said, no, um, the defendant had a, had a higher objective here, something that was more important to him that he was willing to risk death for, and that was not admitting these particular facts. That is just like Mr. Roof's case. He did not want the death penalty. Um, that, that was not his goal. But he told the court point blank, I have a higher objective here. It is more important to me to not present myself as mentally ill. And once he said that, his attorneys were obligated to uh, to abide by that objective. I guess that the question of in McCoy, of course, it was a question of whether you're going to be admit guilt or maintain your innocence. Here, if the objective is to avoid the death penalty, you would think that it's a, a, a strategic decision of whether is it best to avoid it by putting on evidence of mental illness or not, which would put it in the lawyer's hands if he had insisted on wanted if he had had lawyers at the penalty phase as opposed to waiving it. I mean, you're equivalent, you're making the equivalent of McCoy's guilt or innocence the same as the tactical decision of whether to put on evidence of mental illness. Now, do you have any case that links those two? Well, I'd like to um, respectfully disagree with the characterization of McCoy, Your Honor, because in McCoy, Mr. McCoy's attorney strenuously contested his guilt. Um, it was the admission of the of the facts, the uh, the actus reus of the killing that was the problem. Um, in, and we know this because not only does the does the um, the the majority talk about this, but Justice Alito talks about this in his dissent. If it had just been a question of admitting guilt. Um, then the Supreme Court's prior case in Brookhart versus Janice would have controlled and it would have been an easy question because an attorney cannot admit the practical equivalent of guilt. So we believe that McCoy is talking about um, the defendant being able to have an overarching objective and that objective, one possibility, is to uh, avoid admitting certain facts and that Mr. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Roof's case squarely fits within this. Um, I see my time is 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 coming down. Yes. Well, I have, I do have another question if my colleagues will permit me. You've relied very heavily on uh, Reed, and I wanted to ask if the distinction that uh, we heard earlier from uh, Ms. Mershidani doesn't play in here. She was uh, quick and right to correct me when I said insanity defense, because there wasn't an insanity defense here. It was, uh, technically speaking, it was mitigation evidence about mental illness in the, in the sentencing phase that we were talking about. But Reed is an insanity defense case, isn't it? It is. It also and that's and that's a distinction with a difference, as was uh, noted by your co-counsel a few minutes ago, because insanity defenses, in effect, admit the act and admit guilt, but say no legal responsibility. In other words, it is it is a statement with immediate 
under the legal construct, immediate legal consequences, right? It is, Your Honor, but I, but I do think Reed parses it out uh, and says it is not just because of that. It is also because of the potential stigmatization. And it cites to other cases, including, I believe it was the Treese case, that talks about um, these sorts of admissions possibly undermining the reasons that a defendant had for committing his offense. Um, we've also cited, and this is in our reply brief, to the um, state versus triple, the Vermont Supreme Court, where it was talking about a diminished capacity defense, which which is is a little bit more similar. Um, so we we do think that there is a. Um, you say the fact that it's an insanity defense and it has immediate consequences is not really a distinguishing feature in your mind. It's that it's really important to the defendant. That's the that's the thing that matters. Not just that it's important to the defendant, Your Honor, that this is um, the defendant's main object objective. Um, and we think it's fair to consider whether that is a reasonable objective, right? It's not just any old objective. It's not that I, I don't want my attorney to wear blue. I mean, you know, you could come up with all sorts of unreasonable objectives. But the courts have repeatedly found that not wanting to um, present oneself as mentally ill because of possible stigmatization is, is reasonable. And so we do think that um, that this fits squarely under McCoy and its program language. Thank you. If there were no further questions on the McCoy point, I would like to move on to the future dangerousness point. Your Honors, at the government's urging and over the defendant's objective, excuse me, objection, the court entered an order broadly precluding Mr. Roof from presenting as mitigation evidence of the conditions of confinement that he would be subject to if he were sentenced to life without parole, the only alternative to a death sentence. The government then capitalized on this absence of evidence it had itself secured and argued in its penalty phase summation to the jury that Mr. Roof's two mitigating factors about his lack of future dangerousness and his ability to be safely confined if spared were, quote, not true. Because, they might because he might incite others to violence through use of the prison mails. Now that argument was misleading because, and nobody disputes this point, there exist security measures at any correctional facility that would prevent the sort of letters the government was asking the jury to envision from ever seeing the light of day. But no one told the jury. And when they keyed in on the government's incitement by mail argument during deliberations, and asked the court if it was relevant to the lack of future dangerous mitigating factors, the court, over the defense's objection again, refused to answer. It told the jurors to just reread the mitigating factors and use their common sense. Jurors were thus left with the misleading, indeed false impression, that Mr. Roof could not be safely confined if he was sentenced to life without parole, and that they should reject these two mitigating factors for that reason. Individually and cumulatively, these errors violated Mr. Roof's right to a reliable penalty phase based on accurate information and a sentencing body that could give effect to his mitigation. You know, excuse me, are these mitigating factors eight and nine? Yes, Your Honor. The court didn't exclude those, did they? I mean, the he, Roof submitted those as additional mitigating factors and the court allowed those. The chronology here can be a bit confusing, so perhaps uh, if I might assist the court, let me take uh, take the court through it a little bit. Um, so what happened in this case is several months before trial, the government sought uh, early disclosure of the uh, the mitigating factors that the defense would proffer. And this was back at a time when Mr. Roof was represented. 
Now, the Federal Death Penalty Act doesn't require this, and the defense raised uh, constitutional objections to it, but nonetheless, the court ordered early pretrial disclosure. So the defense submitted a notice of proposed mitigating factors. Um, and in that notice, they included two mitigating factors about how Mr. Roof's individual characteristics and the characteristics of his crime, based on those, how he would, um, how the life in prison would be more onerous for him. The government then filed a motion in limine. And as part of that argument, and, and, they, and they argued that those two mitigating factors should be struck. And as part of that argument, what the government urged the court to hold was that evidence of prison conditions, including prison security measures, are not relevant mitigation. And they, in, and they in particular also argued that they are irrelevant to future dangerousness. And this is that 471 of the Joint Appendix, that they make this argument. So then Mr. Roof comes back for, for, through counsel and responds, well, wait a second, um, general evidence of prison security measures is relevant to future dangerousness. Let's be clear on that. But court, you don't need to go there. That, that's not what we're talking about. That's, that's broader than the court needs to um, needs to consider here. Um, these particular factors are individualized to Mr. Roof. We don't need to talk about prison security generally. Now, this issue having squarely been presented by the parties, the court nonetheless writes this broad order saying details of prison administration are not proper as mitigation, full stop. So given that context, that, that the relevance of, of this evidence um, to future dangerousness was specifically before the court, uh, we think it's clear that Mr. Roof was at that point by the order precluded from presenting this evidence. So then- Well, the they, you know, I'm sure the government's attorneys are gonna speak for themselves, but I understood the government's response to be, that wasn't, that kind of breadth is not a fair or an appropriate reading of the government's order. I mean, of the district court's order. Judge Gergel was saying, you can't start talking about prison conditions as, uh, as a way of, uh, uh, trying to say, uh, look, it's going to be um, particularly good or bad for him based on uh, on BOP policies, uh, but that nothing in that prevented you from coming forward with uh, evidence that was very uh, specific about what was going to, uh, uh, well, specific to Mr. Roof. Uh, that that uh, your your effort to say look at look at all the protections that there are associated with BOP policies that doesn't speak to the issue that you wanted to speak to uh, more specifically. Now, I understand you disagree with that, but what uh, what is it that makes you say that we should accept your assertion that this reading of uh, Judge Gergel's order is the right one? That he meant to say you can't talk about the prison period. Full, as you put it, full stop. Why, why is that the right reading? Well, I, I would presume to, to, to suggest what the court meant to do, but, I, but I, I, I would point the court to two things. First, the plain language of the order, and then to the context that led up to it. So the plain language of the order, and I'm looking at 493 to 494 here, um, it is inappropriate to ask the jury to imagine conditions at some imaginary prison. Details of prison administration are not a proper matter for a capital sentencing jury. They are too speculative, and uh, the court is precluding as mitigation uh, evidence that would speculate about defendants' future conditions of confinement. 
And right, right. That all of that, I agree. Those are the exact words. And what the what the court seemed to be saying is, I don't want you speculating. And 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 that seems to be what the concern was that you were going to say third parties might do this, and if third parties did do this, this is how the prison would react in in some prison where he does go to, and that would all be too speculative. And I don't like that. Now, what's uh, why is that the same? Uh, as uh, as saying that uh, you can't present uh, evidence that's specific to the defendant on trial and relevant to the specific defendant's ability to adjust their prison life. Well, so the evidence that Mr. Roof would have needed here to address the government's uh, argument that it made in 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 summation was general prison security evidence, right? It it. it um, it was individualized in the sense that it was about Mr. Roof's future dangerousness, but it was about general prison security measures that would have prevented him from ever sending out uh, a letter like the one that the, the government was asking jurors to envision, right? And in Lawler, um, which of course uh, postdates the court's decision, so it did not have the benefit of Lawler versus Sook, but Lawler says this kind of idea about um, generalized evidence uh, not being relevant is, is a red herring. Right. Well, counsel, let me, let me, because again, that's, that's what I'm interested in is the extent to which Lawler guides us. Yes. And let me ask you this question. The court does say in Lawler, you're, you're right what it says first, but then it immediately says the evidence must connect the specific characteristics of a particular defendant to his future adaptability in the prison environment. Now, that's where the, uh, Judge Gergel was right, because you've got to connect particular specific characteristics of defendant to future adaptability and not just some overarching speculation about whether you're going to be in a in a, in a medium uh, or the lowest level of security or whether you're going to be in the highest level of prison right well so there were there were two decisions here um the first was to exclude the mitigating factors that mr Roof had proposed about how prison would be particularly onerous um, and we think that that was wrongly decided. But whether or not it was, in, in issuing its order, the court made this broader statement after having after the parties had briefed whether this sort of evidence was relevant to future dangerousness, um, excluding this general evidence that Lawler very clearly says um, is relevant. And I, and I don't believe this is a point of dispute between the parties. With Lawler in hand, I think everyone is agree in agreement that evidence of general prison security measures uh, would be relevant to this issue that the government raised of whether Mr. Roof could incite others to violence through use of the mail. But you still got to connect them to the, like uh, Nine does, Nine tries, I think, I should presume, Nine says this, given his personal characteristics, safely confined. You know what it says. Uh, don't you have to do that? Isn't Don't you have to do that even under Lawler? Well, I think that presenting evidence of prison security me measures, that would... Uh, rebut a suggestion of uh, of an act of future dangerousness um, is, is sufficiently particularized. And that seems clear from Lawler. We also have, um, I believe it would be Simmons, right? That was general evidence about whether someone would, um, would be eligible for parole. And that general evidence um, was relevant to future dangerousness. So I don't think there's any dispute as to the relevance of prison security measures to the factors presented in eight or nine. Um, but beyond the evidentiary issue, your honors, um, we have a separate issue here because the government then, in summation, misleadingly told jurors that Mr. Roof could not be safely confined because he might incite others to violence through use of the mail. And it made this argument couched in vouching language, 
saying that Mr. Roop's mitigating factors were simply not true. And now the government, no doubt, was aware that basic male screening procedures exist at any correctional facility um, just to prevent this sort of uh, male, dangerous male from, from getting out. Um, the jurors, however, would not have been aware of that um, and likely would have deferred to the prosecutor, a law enforcement official um, who they would have assumed would have expertise on this matter. The well, jurors, yeah. Usually when we talk about vouching, we're talking about vouching for uh, a uh, sometimes what a specific witness might say or something like that here. It feels like you're using that term a little loosely to say we don't like we don't like what the prosecutor said because it was broad enough to be interpreted as saying, you know, that there's nothing that could be said in this. Whereas what the prosecutor said is that's not true. And you could read that as saying what prosecutors and defense lawyers say all the time, which is you shouldn't believe what they say. I'm disagreeing with them. And here's why. If if we if we cut it as finely as you're asking us to cut it, are we are wouldn't we be holding both prosecutors and defense lawyers to a pretty impossible standard, which is you can't disagree without being at risk of being told you've lied to the jury and are and are vouching because what the prosecutor said is it's just not it's just not true that this that you can make this guy safe. Uh, uh, we think there's there's danger. Well, that's right, Your Honor. The prosecutor didn't simply say, um, we disagree. You look at the evidence. We think it points in one direction. The, the court repeatedly used the simply not true. There are some factors that are true. There are others that are not true. These two are not true. And we do think that is vouching language and that is appropriate to, to hold the government to that standard. But the well, vouching issue the, aside. Yeah, yeah. In spite of the double negatives, the prosecutor liked the double negatives, as you know, by the way that they, they state the issue. Uh, this, despite that, suppose that they were improper for a second. Boy, isn't this minuscule in the big uh, thing here, the factors that we must go by, let's say the Wilson factors, I'll call them just for short. Is is it is it this uh, no prejudice? So if the court's referring to the United States versus Wilson case where they go through the Darden factors. So um, the Darden test isn't applicable here. Those, those, those factors um, perhaps may be informative. Um, but this is the impairment of an enumerated right, Mr. Roof's right under the Eighth Amendment to a reliable penalty phase. Um, and so uh, the Darden uh, test is not the right test here. It is harmless beyond a reasonable doubt that the government needs to prove. Um, and the Donnelly versus D, uh, Christophero case is, is what tells us that. Yeah, yes, you're, you're right about the environment. But, but, you know, even Wilson was talking about a denial of due process. But let's don't go there for a second. Address the kind of factors and whether uh, there's prejudice. Great, Your Honor. So, of course, first and most important, the prejudice inquiry is one that puts the burden on the government. Uh, and they have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And not just that, um, not, it, it, they have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that this didn't contribute to the verdict of just one juror. Because, of course, that's all it took in this case. So why can't they show that? Well, a number of reasons. Um, first of all, we think uh, that, that Lawler versus Zook uh, tells us that, that they can't show that. And of course, that binds this panel. Um, in the Lawler case, um, in its harmless error analysis, which was under the much more difficult Brecht standard on habeas, um, Lawler said that because the jurors um, issued questions that showed they struggled with how to determine future dangerousness, um, the court was left in doubt 
uh, about whether they understood it. Uh, and that alone was their basis for finding that the error was not harmless. That makes sense, um, both as a general matter and also specifically in this case. Um, as a general matter, we know from empirical studies that we, we cited in our opening brief that future dangerousness is the single most important consideration for capital sentencing jurors in just making their, their decision. Um, so we know that future dangerousness is, this is not a, a minuscule question. This is actually an incredibly important question, and the jurors should have received scrupulously accurate information on it. Standby counsel for Mr. Roof stated that they were planning to for you know they were planning to put on expert an expert witness about the fact that he wouldn't be dangerous if he were confined to prison and he forego they didn't put that proof on did they? So what what counsel said in that in that pleading and of course it was it was um, a pleading that Mr. Roof did not join this was part of the the competency um, request that that counsel made was that. Um, if Rue hadn't self-represented, um, then counsel would have put on a sort of a, a Dr. Cunningham-type expert, this kind of um, risk assessment where the defendant is evaluated and, and his, his risk level is presented. But they drop a footnote there, Your Honor, that says, and also, but for the court's order that precluded general prison conditions evidence, we would present that. So, um, so counsel and Mr. Roof alike uh, felt precluded from presenting the evidence they needed here because of the court's order. But to go back to, to Judge Benton's question about um, the prejudice here, um, it is incredibly important that of the three questions that jurors sent out during their penalty phase deliberations, two of them were on this particular issue, right? Two of them asked, um, Your Honor, <laughs> what, what do we do with this, in, this incite others to violence but through the male argument that the prosecutor raised, right? Is that relevant to future dangerousness? Um, can I, can I ask you this, Ms. Yates? Yes. Did, at that point, did the did uh, defense counsel come forward and say, Your Honor, this is this is the point at which we would we're not, you know, we understand the court's earlier ruling, we think, but here's where we think we would like to talk to the jury about uh, the uh, male screening that's available about Bureau of Prison Regulations that would control his ability to communicate. Is there, is there anything like that where the district court heard, heard that and said, I'm just not going to let you put in anything about that? So there were several objections made. Um, Mr. Roof first um, immediately objects, right? Even Mr. Roof, this impaired 22-year-old with no experience in the criminal justice system, when he hears the government make this argument, even he recognizes the unfairness of this and immediately objects. So then closing argument concludes. And objects Mr. and says what? Uh, objects and says um, that, that this was not proper argument, that, that he didn't think that it was a reasonable inference from the evidence. The, okay. he, he objected to the argument that he would be dangerous. I'm asking you a specific question about because the argument you made earlier and what you've just repeated is they all understood, they being defense counsel and Mr. Roof personally, that they just couldn't put in any evidence to address this argument. And I'm asking whether whether anybody sought a clarification from the court uh, uh uh, raise the issue again for reconsideration if they thought they were right. Uh, was there anything like that? Yes, Your Honor. That's what happens next. Right. Um, so then, um, so then the summation concludes, and Mr. Roof again objects, and he specifically says, "Your Honor, this is unfair. I was precluded from putting in this evidence. It's not fair that the government made this argument." 
and uh, and the court rejects that. And then um, the it says and says and and, and says uh, I disagree. I don't think I precluded you from. Presenting. There you go. Right. The well, court says I didn't stop you. You can. Well, the court the court has a view of what the court said, which is very different from what the defense seems to think. Uh, and and the court is saying you you've you're you were able to do this. The plain language of the order is what it is. I mean, I, I think the government's argument is, well, Mr. Roof, um, despite the plain language of the order, should have understood based on the context that led up to it, that it didn't really mean what it said and that he somehow needed to renew his his objection that this sort of evidence was relevant to future dangerousness uh, at some later point. But the context leading up had involved the precise question of future dangerousness. So I, I don't really understand that argument, uh, candidly, Your Honor. Um, they did then ask for a curative instruction, right, telling the jury um, that Mr. Roof was not permitted to introduce evidence of conditions of confinement um, and that they should disregard incitement through the mail. And then, of course, we have the juror questions that come. And the, the jurors ask these questions. And what the court does is is nothing. And and what that did is it deprived Mr. Roof of the ability to have the jurors consider his mediating factors because it effectively converted them into aggravated ones. Uh, and, and we know that the government's argument hit its mark because on the verdict form um, the, for these two factors, the jurors wrote zero, that nine, no juror had found in favor of him. Okay, there was no so... so when this argument that they converted the mitigating into aggravating, I, I puzzled over this a little bit because it, it, it almost seems that the defense is arguing that the, def, the government is not entitled to rebut. The government is not entitled to respond to a mitigating factor. Here, the mitigating factor was put in front of the jury and the government said, don't believe that because it's it's just not accurate and the, and you shouldn't accept it and then you're and and here's why you shouldn't accept it and then your argument in response is well you've turned it into an aggravator was was is the government bound to stand silent in the face of your mitigation evidence or are they allowed to rebut and if they're allowed to rebut how do they avoid the argument you're making now which is you've unfairly converted a mitigator into an aggravator it wasn't the government's argument that converted it. It was the, the court's refusal to um, correct the, the, the jury's misimpression that Mr. Group's mitigating factors um, went this far. And we know that that impacted them because if it was just about his uh, ability to or risk of personal violence, there was no dispute on that point. The government wasn't arguing that. Um, in terms of what, what the government was allowed to do, I would point this court to the, the Wilson case that Judge Benton mentioned earlier. Um, in that case, what happened was um, the government had what the Wilson court called an 11th hour surprise. In summation, the, the prosecutor there asked jurors to draw an inference from the record that the defense could not have reasonably anticipated. That was the problem in Wilson, and they found that was mis prosecutorial misconduct and reversible for it. That's exactly what we have here. There was, no there was no way you could have anticipated that they were going to respond to your mitigation factor by saying that's not so? Uh, there's no way to anticipate based on the evidence that they had presented. So when, when the government's penalty phase case closed, it was not apparent to the defense, um, nor could it have been, that there was a need to put on evidence of prison security measures that could have kept Mr. Roof from sending uh, this sort of inciting mail um, out. Uh, that, that was not apparent. The only um, evidence that the government points to that might be related is this testimony of Lauren Knapp. Um, it begins at 6178 in the record. This was a jail official um, 
And what she testified to was that Mr. Roof had been in pretrial custody for, I think, approximately two months. He had not written any letters up until that point, but he wrote his first one. And uh, as part of her job, she was screening his incoming and outgoing mail. And Ms. Knapp testified that she read this letter and she thought it, it concerned her that Mr. Roof might be suicidal based on what was in it. And so she spoke with her superiors. They put him on suicide watch. They searched his cell and they found this jailhouse writing that the government calls a manifesto. Um, and she proceeded to read that to the jury. OK, and then she testifies um, in response to the government's final question. Um, what, what did he do with the writing? She says, I gave it back. We gave that back to Mr. Roof. That is the sum total of the evidence. Now, we would dispute this um, this inference, but um, could a reasonable inference from that evidence be that Mr. Roof was writing this um, in the hopes of sending it out to incite violence? Okay, that possibly. Um, there is no reasonable inference that could be drawn from that that he ever could. His mail was being screened, and we know as a pure factual matter, he could not. I mean, that is not disputed. The, the jury simply was, was led, misled to believe um, that this could be released. Right. So, th so really, there's two there's two things that uh, to try to put a point on this. Uh, to for your for you to win on this, we have to accept that uh, the government's argument was improper. That is, that making statements about uh, future dangerousness uh, in the aftermath of the court's ruling was a surprise and improper. And we also have to accept your argument that the district court's ruling uh, uh, was a blanket uh, refusal to allow any comment on uh, uh, prison security measures. Those are those are two key factors for you to win on the arguments you've just presented, right? Um, those are two of four errors that we have presented. Um, that are interrelated here. The exclusion but of the initial, if, and, we, and if you lose so, on if you lose on those two, you can't win the argument you're making, right? No, I, I disagree, Your Honor. I think okay. uh, I think any one of them. First, the exclusion of the two mitigating factors that were individualized to Mr. Roof would be an error. Um, but I'm focusing more on the um, the error of uh, excluding the evidence. And the plain language of the order clearly does. Um, then separately, even if this court disagrees with that, under United States versus Wilson, it was inappropriate and misconduct for the government to come in in summation at this 11th hour and make this claim, which was there was evidence that could demonstrably rebut it that uh, had been precluded, um, that uh, that that they that the jurors was misled on. Um, separately from all of that, even if those up to that point were not errors, when the jury came back under Bolenbach and said, we are expressing clear confusion on this crucial issue of future dangerousness, and the judge refused to clear away the confusion, then that was also an error. So they work together. I mean, certainly all of them together, we believe, deprived Mr. Roof of a fair penalty phase and the ability to have a jury properly consider his lack of future dangerousness mitigation. Um, but individually, each one would merit relief. Does the court have further questions on this? If not, perhaps I could reserve the remaining time uh, as part of my rebuttal. Uh, yes, uh, Ms. Renison will do that. Thank you, and Your Honor. Thank you. Ms. Adams, I understand you're to argue next for the government. Correct. May it please the court. I'm Ann O'Connell Adams for the United States. Today, I'm covering the questions related to competency, 
self-representation and the penalty phase. So that's questions one through 14 in our brief, and it's all of the questions that appellant's counsel covered. My co-counsel, Bonnie robin Vergier is prepared to cover the guilt phase questions if the court has questions about those. I know they were not part of the defense presentation this morning. Unless the court has a different preference, we can begin with competency. The district court did not clearly err in finding Ruth competent, and it should affirm unless the district court's finding is arbitrary or unwarranted. Ample evidence supports the district court's competency finding. First, Ruth had a rational and factual understanding of the nature and consequences of the proceedings against him. The district court noted his high IQ, his ability to describe the proceedings in detail, and no expert said he didn't understand the proceedings. Well, hold, hold on, Ms. Adams. Why, why don't you just go straight at, at Ms. Uh, Mercendani's uh, argument that there was just a fail, the, the district court just didn't engage on this, didn't address the, the substantial uh, number of witnesses and evidence provided by the def, uh, defense that that uh, this, this defendant, didn't matter whether he was a really smart guy, he was a really, really ill man, uh, and incompetent, incapable of, uh, of actually assisting in his defense. Um, please just like, go straight at that assertion that the written record fails to show that Judge Gergel did the weighing required to be done to make this competency decision. Judge Gergel at the first competency hearing heard six witnesses testify for Roof, including Dr. Maddox, who testified that Roof was incompetent to stand trial. His written order goes through all of the evidence that was presented at that hearing and rejects it in favor of Dr. Ballinger's finding that Roof was competent, that he understood the proceedings against him um, and that he had the capacity, the ability to assist counsel if he wanted to. Counsel is pointing to a lot of reports that were submitted with, uh, as an attachment for the motion for a second competency hearing, but none of those reports spoke to a change in competency since the first hearing, and the court has those reports. So you have them, we have them. Um, right. but, the, but their assertion is there's nothing that shows that the district court gave them a fair, a fair hearing, a fair consideration. They, they're, they were, as the defense puts it, roughly speaking, dismissed out of hand. What? Why is that reading of the record inaccurate or unfair? Well, at first it's not unfair because none of these reports, all of these reports were submitted right before the penalty phase. They weren't submitted with- I'm assuming with, you mean it's not fair, not that it's not unfair. Here we're caught in the double negative world again, but-, but, but it, it, it wasn't unfair for the district court to not look at those new reports if, if he didn't in fact look at them, which I think the record indicates he does, as, as did Dr. Ballinger. Um, and that's because none of these reports that were attached to the motion for a second competency hearing spoke to a change in Roof's competency. The motion for a second competency hearing before the penalty phase was based on a representation from defense counsel that facts arising after the first competency hearing showed a change in Roof's competency. And none of the reports that defense counsel were trying to submit spoke to that change in competency. Counsel mentioned a few times the report of Dr. Moberg. Dr. Moberg evaluated Roof in February, 2016. It was almost a year before the first competency hearing. There was no mention of Dr. Moberg that they couldn't get Dr. Moberg there in time. 
Dr. Moberg's report wasn't submitted at the first competency hearing, even though Dr. Moberg had all of the information available to him. The other reports as well. Um, well they, said, they said, now tell me if I misunderstood, but that Moberg's report wasn't done at the time of the November hearing, did not yet exist. Is there, it, I'm quoting them, did not yet exist. So it did not. It did not yet exist. I mean, I think none of the experts, I think the, the fact that there was a competency hearing caught Ruth's experts off guard. Dr. Lofton tells you in the affidavit from Cyprus, I'm here in Cyprus without my files because I wasn't expecting there to be a competency hearing. And I think that shows that these experts that had been meeting with Ruth over the course of 14 months or however many months it was leading up to the trial, they were prepared to testify in mitigation that he had autism um, or that they were prepared to diagnose him with other things, but nobody thought he was incompetent. Um, and, and I just want to clarify about whether Dr. Ballinger read the reports. Judge Benton has the citation for where Judge Gurgle says he read them, and, and he doesn't go back and, and say that that was an error, and he thought he had them before the first hearing. Dr. Ballinger um, you know, says in his second competency report at JA 5978 and 5979, he lists all of those reports as reports that he read in preparation for the competency hearing. He confirms in his testimony at JA 5602 and 5603 that he did read them. There was some confusion about that. And then a significant amount of, of Dr. Ballinger's second competency report is about a discussion that he had about those reports with Ruth. He says when he showed up to the prison, Ruth had, had Dr. Lofton's report. He had them all printed out. He had them highlighted. He wanted to talk to Dr. Ballinger about them. So there can be no question that those reports were actually considered at least by Dr. Ballinger. Now the court could say, I don't want to, you know, to, to look at what's in these reports because they should have been submitted back in November. Um, well, the, but, yeah, the court could have said that, but didn't say that, right? It, what the court said was there's law of the case. And the law of the case is a specific legal doctrine that, that bears on legal issues. And how does law of the case have anything to do with whether or not the district court could consider these things? I, I don't think that law of the case, Judge Gurgle did say that there was no objection at the time to whether this could be a, you know, this was a proper use of law of the case or anything like that. But well, yeah, whether they objected or not, though, whether they objected or not, if that's the basis on which he made his decision, isn't that an error? I mean, isn't that a clear error to, to say it's law of the case that I looked at this before and therefore I can't look at it again? No, um, we, we say in our brief, um, you know, we're, we're not trying to defend the use of the law of the case doctrine. What Judge Gurgle was doing was saying, I've already found in November 2016 that Ruth was competent. This motion that was filed for a second competency hearing was based on a representation that counsel had noticed changes since November that called his competency into question before the penalty phase. And he said, you know, this is not a redo of the first hearing. We're not going back to, you know, come up with all the evidence that you didn't come up with back in November. We're going to assume he was competent um, in November 2016. And I want you to tell me during this hearing of, of any evidence you have that there's been a change in competency since November. And we, we cite a case in our brief, the Adams case, that, that says a judge, when he makes a factual finding, can say this factual finding is, is a finding that I'm going to, to let 
sit for the rest of the proceedings. So we don't think this was like a technical application of the law of the case doctrine. Judge Gergel was entitled to say, you're telling me there's been a change in his competency, so let's see the evidence of the change. You agree it was imprecise and inaccurate and wrong, right? Say, law, say the words law of the case about facts. We don't think law of the case applies. I take that as a yes, proceed. Yes. Okay, go ahead. Defense counsel is arguing that Roof did not rationally understand the consequences of the proceedings against him and could not cooperate with his attorneys because of a delusion that he was going to be rescued from prison by white nationalists. But Roof confirmed that he understood there was a high likelihood that he would be sentenced to death and the chance of being rescued was very small. Dr. Ballinger testified that Roof didn't have a shred of doubt that he faced a risk of death and the district court credited that testimony. Roof was not making an irrational calculation that his best way to stay alive was to keep out the mental health mitigation evidence and then be rescued from death row. Dr. Ballinger testified that his concern was he didn't want his act to be discredited. He stood by what he did. He had no regrets about his crime and protecting his reputation was important to him whether he lived or died. That is, there's testimony about that from Ballinger at JA 1061. Okay, let me let me interrupt you for the other thing that got me during uh, Ms. Merchandati's argument. She mentions the Anton and Wooden case several times. I just checked. It's really in her brief a lot. I don't think you even mentioned the cases. I could be wrong, but it's not in your index, and I didn't see them quickly there. Do you want to comment on Antoine and Wooden? Um, I, I don't. Is it the the proposition that somebody can be delusional? Like if a person is delusional, then it's, it's just if you if you ignore a lot of defense evidence, you can get reversed. Yes, and and the district court didn't do that here. So there's two competency hearings, and I want to make that clear. So the first competency hearing, Roof had six witnesses, and the district court goes through in a comprehensive opinion and addresses each one of those witnesses, and you know says whether it's crediting their testimony or not, and making a finding that it's crediting Ballinger. And the witnesses that, that Roof put on, there was, um, you know, none of them were making a diagnosis that Roof had any kind of a delusional disorder. They noted some symptoms of psychosis, but nobody said, I'm, I'm diagnosing him with this particular delusional disorder. Dr. Lofton says at the second hearing, you know, she, she thinks attenuated psychosis is an appropriate there's, diagnosis. There's no evidence of a somatic, somatic delusion in this? Well, there is. And so the, the somatic delusions. So Dr. Ballinger says, I don't think those are probably delusions. Those are probably the result of an anxiety disorder. But the somatic delusions, even if they're delusions, are not evidence of a broader delusional disorder. So and, and those delusions, um, you know, everybody noticed that they were happening. Defense counsel um, saw that uh, heard about these delusions. The experts heard about these delusions. Nobody thought that that was um, evidence of a broader delusional disorder or showed that Roof was disconnected from reality. And certainly those particular- You, you, beliefs, couldn't, you couldn't read the defense uh, um, reports to indicate uh, and the, the pleading from the defense side to indicate this is, a, as Ms. Mercendani put it, this is a, a, a part of a broader pattern, a, a larger picture of a deeply, deeply disturbed human being. Well, they, no, I don't think that any of the defense experts were saying he had a delusional disorder. 
that he was disconnected from reality, that he was stuck on this belief that he would be. Well, I'm, I'm just, I'm sorry to interrupt, but when you say there's nobody said that, maybe I thought, I thought they were saying, and I've heard it repeated here today, that they were saying this guy had a delusion that he was going to be the, the man who starts the fire. He's going to start the race war and sure he's going to pay a price in the short term, but his brother neo-Nazis are going to come get him out of jail and it's all going to be for the greater good. And uh, he's willing to pay the price because it's, this is, this is going to, this is going to save the world for, for the white race. That's, that's his worldview. That's his fixed view that drives everything he does. And that's delusional. Now that's, I understand. And I, I haven't done it justice. I'm sure they said it better than I did, but when you say nobody said he was delusional, uh, on the contrary, I keep hearing them say, oh, this guy's delusional, all right, and this is his delusion, and it's a fixed delusion, and it drives everything, and it represents incompetence because he can't assist in his defense because he's got this fixed and bizarre view of, a, of what the future is going to be. So respond to that. Why is that assertion from the defense one that just doesn't have any traction and one that the district court wasn't obligated at the second hearing to address more fully. Well, I think the, the first point is, even if somebody is having a delusion, that delusion has to render the person incompetent to stand trial. So it has to connect back to, do you have a rational and factual understanding of the proceedings against you? And do you have the ability to consult with your counsel to a rational degree of understanding? So, you know, if, if Roof is reading a lot of white so supremacists- he, he doesn't, he, their, their argument is, he doesn't have the ability to connect with his lawyers because he won't engage with them on it. He just cuts them off and says, no, you can't say anything about this that would that would indicate that that I'm not well. I don't want you to say a word about it. I refuse to engage with you on this. Is that does that not hit the competency issue? I think the question is whether that is because a mental disease or defect is causing a delusion, like the a, a fixed false belief that he's going to be rescued from prison only if the evidence is not introduced that is preventing him from from cooperating with his lawyers and that there is evidence in the record, lots of evidence in the record to, to suggest that that is not what was going on here at all. Ruth's experts that testify about that delusion, you know, Dr. Lofton says in her affidavit, I'm prepared to diagnose him with autism spectrum disorder. I also once heard him say he's going to be rescued from prison. But Dr. Ballinger is the only person who explores that idea with Ruth. And Ruth says, you know, he, Dr. Ballinger said, this is not a delusion. He wasn't stuck on this. He was able to joke about it. He's able to accept other information and admit that even though this is something that um, he thinks would be really great if it happened, he's not counting. He understands that the chances of it happening are very low. Um, this is something that, you know, you'd probably read in white supremacist literature on the internet. Dr. Ballinger testifies that there's no psychotic process here. Um, that Ruth has no disorganized speech, no abnormalities, no inability to maintain eye contact, and that he wouldn't be able to fake that during uh, the absence of psychosis, during sustained interactions over multiple days. Um, and he also says he wouldn't be able to fake that absence of psychosis on three different tests that were administered to him and that showed no psychotic disorder. 
And, you know, again, the, the experts are saying we noticed symptoms of delusions, but none of them are willing to say that he has a delusional disorder, that he's disconnected from reality. Dr. Maddox was the only expert to testify. She thought he was incompetent because um, this idea that he was going to be rescued from prison was preventing him from cooperating with his lawyers. The district court addressed that in its opinion and, and rejected it and credited Dr. Ballinger's um, the summary of it instead that, you know, I tested this out with him and that is not a delusion that he's stuck on. He doesn't have any kind of a delusional disorder. I want to just point to one thing that came up in the presentation from the defense counsel, um, which was the assertion in the reply brief that defense counsel acted diligently in bringing this to the court's attention because it wasn't until he stopped cooperating that competency was in question. Um, and I, I just want to dispute that. Um, if, if really there had been all this evidence that Roof was stuck on a delusion, he was going to be rescued from prison, counsel is arguing that that also prevents him from understanding the proceedings against him. So if he didn't understand the consequences of the proceedings, then this is something that should have been brought up before the eve of trial. I think it just all goes to um, the district court's um, um, consideration and his the justifiable uh, skepticism of the idea that there was a, even a need for a competency hearing to begin with, given that all of these experts had been evaluating him for months and hadn't brought up the issue of competency at all. Unless the court has further questions on competency, we can move to McCoy. The McCoy issue is whether Roof had a Sixth Amendment right to instruct his lawyers to withhold mitigation evidence. And McCoy did not fundamentally reshuffle the division of decision-making authority between the lawyer and the client. As we've gone over, the defendant gets to decide whether to plead guilty, whether to waive a jury trial, whether to testify, and whether to appeal. The lawyer gets to decide what arguments to call to make what witnesses to call, and what objections to make. Well, Ms. Adams, that's, that can't be precisely right when you say which arguments to make, because in McCoy, there, there is, you can frame that as, as making arguments. The, the, the defense lawyer deciding, I'm going to admit the act because there's a way I want to argue this. And the, and the Supreme Court says, no, you don't get to do that because that's, that's a fundamental objective of the defense. So I'll ask you what I asked Ms. Yates, which is what's, help us understand the line between what's a tactical decision and what is a fundamental objective of the defense. And, wh and why, why are you right in saying that this is just, you know, the, the mental illness stuff is just tactical. And why are they wrong in saying, no, this is a fundamental objective of defense particularly in light of your own argument a few minutes ago that that roof said from the beginning this is the mo this is like absolutely basic to him he does not want any evidence of mental illness to come in it represents the break with his lawyers it's it's of utmost importance to this defendant i don't think that i don't think the government can dispute that right no i think that's right Okay, so how is that help us understand then where the line is between tactical decision and fundamental objective of the defense and why this, which is clearly uppermost in this defendant's mind, is not a fundamental objective of the defense? So when McCoy talks about 
the objectives of the defense. It, it doesn't make any broad statements that, you know, the defendant gets to decide just in a, in a broad ranging way what the objectives are of his defense. It cites to uh, ABA model rule of professional conduct 1.2 to talk about what are the objectives of the defense. And those say that, you know, you talk to your client about um, whether to plead guilty, whether to waive a jury trial, whether he wants to testify, and you have to follow what he says on those. And in McCoy, we know that included in that is, do you want to admit your guilt at trial or do you want to maintain your innocence, which we think goes right along with the, the decision whether to plead guilty. Um, but it, you know, it doesn't go broader than that to say the defendant just gets to decide um, in general, what he wants to accomplish um, from the hearing. So Roof takes a Roof takes a very broad view of what that means. He says in the opening brief. Um, You're, I don't want to. I'm sorry to interrupt, but it. Um, I'm trying to ha have you help us with the analytical point. There's may not be an exact, easy to draw line, but can you? I mean, we, we know what Roof argued because we've read the briefs and we've heard the argument today. Uh, and you've even acknowledged that this is, this issue of not admitting mental illness is something that is just as important as it can be to him. And as Judge Gilman's earlier questions indicated, you know, it's like, and I shouldn't put words in his mouth, but it's what it indicates to me is that this was also real basic to whether he's getting the death penalty or not. So it, if that's if that's the backdrop here, what makes that not a fundamental objective of the defense? What do you point to say that's just tactics? At this point, it's all tactics. Well, I think we we can certainly point to Fourth Circuit precedent and Sexton versus French. The Fourth Circuit says the what evidence to present in a capital sentencing hearing is is evidence um, that's is a tactical decision that's best left in the hands of counsel. But I think. More broadly, in a capital case, in addition to those four things that the defendant is getting to decide whether to plead guilty, to testify, to waive the right to a jury trial, whether to appeal, he can also decide whether he wants to, to try to get life imprisonment. And that's the goal that his law that was communicated to his lawyers. They tell us that at JA 574 and 662, they said he's told us he doesn't want the death penalty. That's the goal we're working toward here. He offered to plead guilty in exchange for life imprisonment, and he decided on a trial rather than go, pleading guilty and going to the penalty phase because he wanted to create appellate issues. And so I think in a, in a case like this, where his goal that's been communicated to his attorneys it, is he wants to avoid the death penalty. That I, thought, that's you know, I thought the record here was a little contrary to that, that he said, uh, and I quote, if people think I have autism, it's, it's credits the reason why I did the crime, and then and then says, you know, lumping lumping wrongly lumping autism in with his his many other issues, uh, uh, but then he also seems to just continuously say uh, it's better to die than to be considered uh, autistic because uh, uh, I don't want people to think I'm not I'm not a fully perfect specimen as as he put it. I mean, if he's didn't isn't doesn't the record reflect that that he's prepared to die rather than have this evidence go in? Yes, but I think if, if you take the if the court adopts a position that the defendant 
gets to say that and change the objective of his defense based on what evidence his lawyers are planning to put in, then that essentially gives him control over the strategic and tactical decisions that belong to the lawyer. He can't say, my objective is to avoid the death penalty, but not if this piece of evidence comes in. Then he's got complete control over the lawyer's realm. In this case, it's I'd rather die than have my lawyers say that I have autism. You know, in the next case, it could be, I, I want you to make the case for life imprisonment, but there can be no implication that my mom was a bad mother. You how, can't tell them. How is this, how is this different from McCoy where the lawyer said, where the defendant says, I don't want you to admit that I shot these people. And, the, and my aim is not to get the death penalty. And the lawyer says, uh, okay, but the best way to do that is what I want to do. I want to admit that you shot the people. I want to admit you killed the people. Uh, and then that's going to be better. And the Supreme Court says, no, you don't, that's at that point, you're, we're not just talking about the tactics of how to get to the objective. That is the objective. That the objective is to avoid admitting you did that. In this case, his objective is to avoid uh, admitting in any way that he's a less than perfect mental care, you know, he's, he's fully competent and not autistic. How, how, what's the logical distinction? How would we dis distinguish this from McCoy? You distinguish it from McCoy because McCoy is about admitting guilt. McCoy is, is so closely related to one of those four decisions that the defendant gets to make that if he decides he's going to plead not guilty and go to trial, then his lawyer can't you know, override that decision if he wants to maintain it throughout the trial by saying, my client is guilty. My client- Then talk, speak to Reed. Dis distinguish Reed. Well, so the insanity defense, Reed, similarly, um, is similar to a guilty plea when you assert the insanity defense. In the federal system under 18 U.S.C. 17, the defendant admits the actus reus of the crime. Um, and, and also in read the, you know, the consequences of, an, of a successful insanity defense are indefinite commitment to a mental institution. And in McCoy's terms, now, you know, McCoy, the, the defendant didn't say, I want to avoid death at all costs. He, you know, the, the court said he, it's, it's logical to hope for some chance of acquittal um, rather than uh, putting the, you know, no death, that, that you won't get the death penalty over that, which is what McCoy well, was well, doing. Then the Ninth Circuit didn't just confine itself to the legal consequences of an insanity defense. Uh, it said uh, that uh, a, a, def a defendant, an insanity defense should not be imposed on a defendant when in ellipses, uh, the, the defendant wants to avoid the risk of confinement in a mental institution and the social stigma associated with an assertion or an adjudication of insanity, that those things are all still present. So it looks like the Ninth Circuit wasn't just looking at the legal fallout of an insanity defense, but was looking at the fundamental problem of institutionalization and social stigma. Isn't that exactly what Roof is arguing here? It, it is one of the things that the Ninth Circuit looked at, and it, but it's our view that um, you know, that stigma alone is not enough to place the decisions in the hand of a defendant, that that just gives him the ability to control what evidence to introduce and what arguments to put on. That if, if you're looking at stigma, it has to be in, in terms of defining the defense objective. So in McCoy, the decision is, are we admitting that you killed these three family members or are we maintaining your innocence? In Reed, the decision is, are we saying you did this, but you're insane and you're going to the mental hospital, 
but a defendant's desire to just avoid opprobrium outside of the specific context of admitting guilt or deciding what that objective is of what the lawyers are trying to do for him, we don't think McCoy should be extended there at all. You just disagree with Reed, right? You heard, you heard the language that Jordan quoted to you. Well, we, we disagree that stigma on its own can be um, a, a reason why the defendant can, um, can seek to leave evidence out or not raise a defense. I think the, you can distinguish Reed based on the fact that a, an insanity defense is similar to a guilty plea and also based on, um, you know, it's a, it's a decision about the fundamental consequences of what happens if that defense is successful. Which By the is way, I certainly agree that you've got to leave out the guilty plea because they say even when the worry about the guilty plea is absent, you know what, you know how a sentence reads. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and we think that, I mean, we do think that you can distinguish it based on the guilty plea and the consequences of it. Um, but that just stigma alone is, is not enough to allow the defendant to, to make decisions. Um, you know, in the next case, he could be saying, I don't ever, I don't want you to tell um, the jury that I filed for bankruptcy. I'm very ashamed of that. Um, or my objective is to come out of this looking like a good mom. You know, he, he says in the reply brief, my objective was to just come out looking like I'm not mentally ill. Those are not the types of defense objectives that the defendant should get to declare and make his lawyers work toward. The lawyers are there to, to um, you know, work toward avoiding the death penalty if that's what their client wants, and that's what these lawyers were doing. The district court laid out the Fourth Circuit precedent on this. So you've got Chapman, which was about um, the authority to accept a mistrial offer. So it's not the same issue that's going on here, but Chapman gives a, a really um, cogent explanation of the decision-making authority between a lawyer and a client. Um, it says that this is not just a typical agent-principal relationship in a criminal case. That's how Ruth saw it. He says, I think my lawyer should just do what I tell them to do. But Chapman tells us in a criminal case, it's different. The defendant has to make certain decisions, and it's those four decisions that we've talked about multiple times, even if, even if he can usually delegate those to, a, to an agent, he has to make those decisions. And then the lawyer makes the strategic and tactical calls, even if a principal could normally draw back the agent's authority over those. And then, of course, in Sexton versus French, um, the Fourth Circuit, you know, and, and I agree that the defendants hadn't voiced an objection to the evidence that was introduced in that case. So in that sense, it's more like Florida versus Nixon than McCoy. But the Fourth Circuit tells us in that case that it views decisions about what mitigating evidence to present at capital sentencing as tactical decisions that are best left in the hands of counsel. Um, the Smith versus Stein decision that's quoted in the reply brief, it does not say that McCoy fundamentally reworked this division of counsel between the lawyer and the client and the Supreme Court in McCoy, you know, that, that case is just deciding that McCoy doesn't apply retroactively. Um, there's no, you know, analysis of whether it's reworked the, the relationship between the lawyer and the client in terms of decision-making. McCoy doesn't undermine those Fourth Circuit precedents. It clarifies that the decision whether to maintain innocence at trial falls in the first category of decisions that the lawyer gets to make. Um, Roof is also focused um, you know, in the brief, and it was repeated in the argument on a quote from Ferretta that it's the accused defense and counsel is merely an assistant. Um, but And that, that quote is repeated in McCoy. Um, but of course, that's followed by decades of precedent that divide the decision-making authority in criminal cases between 
the lawyer and a client in a way to that be sure I didn't misunderstood to be sure I didn't misunderstand something you said in passing McCoy applies to this case on direct review right it does proceed that's correct I think you said it didn't apply retroactively. I think you it, meant it, it doesn't apply retroactively, but since Roof's case is on direct review, it, it applies to his case. Um, and I think it, it may be helpful to just walk through what happens if the client and the lawyer have an intractable conflict on a strategic or tactical decision. And, and the dissent in McCoy kind of walks through this, and I think it's, it's very helpful. If the client has hired his own lawyer- yeah, Counsel, this it, is all from the dissenting opinion, right? That's correct. Okay, what authority is it before you get too carried away? Excuse me? What authority is it? How powerful is it? How persuasive oh, I mean, is it if it's, it's in it's the dissenting opinion? It's, it's, not, you know, it's not binding. It's not even, it's just a walking through um, what okay, happens if there's a, yeah. So if the, you know, if there's, if the defendant has hired a lawyer, and, and as they're leading up to trial and talking about strategy, it becomes clear that they have an intractable um, conflict over how to proceed, then the defendant can fire that lawyer and hire somebody else that's willing to go along with what he wants to do. If he has appointed counsel, he can ask for a new lawyer. He doesn't necessarily have the right to it, but under 18 USC 3006A, the court can substitute in appointed counsel in the interest of justice. I'll point out Ruth didn't ask for new counsel and hasn't made that an issue on the appeal. And the judge mentioned that it would be futile. It said, it, the judge said, if, if I were to replace counsel today and bring in another set of lawyers, we'd be in exactly the same position. Ruth had four experienced capital defense lawyers who refused to follow Ruth's instructions here according to their professional responsibility and filed a brief confirming it was their understanding that this was their decision. The lawyer might, in some circumstances, decide to go along with what the defendant is, is suggesting. Um, and we, we see that in a couple of the state court cases, People versus Amiscua and Flores, Taylor versus Steele. And courts have generally said that if you make a record of it and explain why you're doing it, that that wouldn't be an effective assistance of counsel. Of course, the lawyers here said, we're not doing that. And then also the defendant, in order to solve this autonomy problem, can represent himself, which is what Ruth did here. Uh, the, the court says in McCaskill, to preserve actual control over the case he chooses to present to the jury, a defendant can waive the right to counsel and represent himself. And so, you know, if, there, if a conflict develops and um, the defendant, it, it's too late for him to, to hire a new lawyer or he hasn't um, taken steps to protect that. He can represent himself as Ruth did here, but no court has said that the answer is counsel has to follow the defendant's instructions. And I think that to, you know, to give the defendant veto power over evidence that he finds shameful or doesn't want his lawyers to introduce gives no guidance to lawyers about what decisions they get to make and what decisions are up to the defendant. I think you're going to start involving the court in those, um, those decisions of professional judgment, that, that's the whole point of the defense lawyers being oh there. There are no further questions on competency, or on, excuse me, on um, McCoy. We can move to future dangerousness. There were two issues going on here. First was whether Roof could present evidence that other prisoners would abuse him in prison as mitigating evidence. 
And the court said, no, the defendant- And we, we read that, and frankly, they didn't spend much time on that. So why don't you engage Ms. Adams on the point that they have chosen to press here at oral argument, which is the district court made a broad statement that no prison conditions evidence was to come in. And the government then sandbagged and uh, used that same kind of prison condition evidence to to further its case in saying he was going to be dangerous going forward. Just take that head on, please. Yes, I, I think the background is important to understand how the issue developed and why Ruth may have been confused about it. Um, so in, in, in the uh, decision on the motion in limine with regard to those two mitigating factors that, that other prisoners would, have, would abuse him, the court said, no, that's not coming in. And it said, you know, it's inappropriate to ask the jury to imagine conditions at an imaginary prison. And these details of prison administration are not a proper matter for a capital sentencing jury. It was saying that in, with respect to Roof's mitigators that he would be abused in prison and that was a reason to impose a life sentence. But it has the flat statement, no evidence speculating about, I'm paraphrasing, but not awful close. No evidence uh, about speculating about Roof's future conditions of confinement of sentence life, period. Yes. And then Ruth, after that ruling on the motion in limine, Ruth provided notice of the future dangerousness mitigators that, that he is pressing today. Um, and so if, if Ruth thought that he wasn't allowed to present evidence on those future dangerousness mitigators, it would be a little odd to then introduce them after the court's ruling on the motion in limine, or at, or at least to get clarification on what evidence he could and could not present in support of them. Standby counsel told us in the district court um, in the pleading that we've cited, it's JA 5251 and footnote six there about what they had in mind for those mitigators that Ruth was going to forego or planning to forego at the sentencing proceeding. And it was to be expert testimony about Ruth's good behavior in prison and his likely future as a nonviolent offender. And they even named an expert, James Austin, PhD, who would get on the stand and testify about that. Council said we would also put on expert testimony of how bad life would be for him in a special housing unit, but for the court's order. Um, and so, you know, Ruth's counsel says with respect to those mitigators that that counsel wrote um, that they were expecting to introduce evidence that Ruth had been behaving himself well in prison. Um, and that is what the prosecutor was countering. Ruth was, was free to put on evidence that he had been behaving himself in prison. The prosecutor said, well, that, that's not what's happening. He's actually sitting there continuing to make racist writings and, um, and you know, having no remorse for his crime. It wasn't evidence about an imaginary prison. It was evidence about Ruth's behavior while he's sitting in prison. The prosecutor- But, but it has to be, I mean, just by its very nature, there's gotta be a little bit of speculation going on, right? Because the issue is future dangerousness. And so in the context of future dangerousness, there had to be some, some projecting of what was going to happen. And that was necessarily going to have to be uh, um, some uh, question or some uh, forecasting of how the prison system could or couldn't control future dangerousness, no? Maybe. I mean, it, well, there, when you I say maybe, help me understand how that how, because, how could there be questions about future dangerousness about a person in prison, uh, well, you know, uh, unless you are talking about prison conditions? Well, I think the, 
the idea here that defense counsel is focused on is the insinuation that Ruth could send these letters out and that the, the prison would be able to intercept them. But I think what, you know, what became clear uh, when they were talking about the jury notes was that incitement doesn't have to just be sending the letters out of prison. You could also be talking to your fellow prisoners and trying to convince them to be white supremacists or harm black people or take action. Um, and Roof can communicate with other prisoners where he is in Terre Haute. He can talk to the people in the cells around him. He can communicate with other prisoners during um, during exercise and all of those things. And so this is re relevant evidence to whether he would be dangerous in a prison. Now, if Ruth wanted to then put on evidence that, no, if I, if I do those things, they'll, you know, put me some other place where I can't communicate with prisoners. Well, he should have asked whether he could put that on. I mean, the district court's uh, motion in limine with respect to other um, mitigating factors did have statements that you couldn't put on general evidence of prison conditions, but you know he he never sought to clarify like that he wanted to respond to this evidence with um, you know with something saying that well they'll be able to control me they'll be able to put me in well, solitary they'll be able counsel, to counsel I've got to interrupt you because didn't the jury ask that the jury says safely confined does this include these writings getting out of prison the jury yes. asked it you, the you're jury putting did it all the defense lawyer go ahead the jury asked it. And, you know, but I want to point out, these are mitigating factors that Roof submitted. So the, the language of them was written by Roof's counsel when they were still representing him. And those are the ones that were submitted to the jury. Um, and, you know, the jury may have been confused about whether, uh, you know, the mitigating factor just referred to Roof himself, like physically harming someone or whether incitement counts. Um, and, and when they talked about it, you know, the district court looked at it, it said, um, he would pose no significant risk of violence to other inmates or prison staff if imprisoned for life. And, you know, Roof said, I think you should tell them that it just means that I won't personally harm people, um, not incitement. And you know, the as, long as, as long as you're on it, what was the what was the district court's obligation uh, with respect to that question when it came forward from the jury? Well, the district court is not obligated to, to clarify any instruction in response to a jury question. I mean, I think the district courts say all the time, just well, read counsel, the instruction. Counsel, as we're in the Fourth Circuit, though. You've seen these uh, older cases in the Fourth Circuit said there's a mandatory obligation uh, to clarify jury questions. I bet you know what I'm referring to. We, we've cited cases in our brief saying this is an abuse of discretion standard. The, you know, the court, these were, these were, mitigating factors that Roof provided himself. And, you know, the government's argument when the jury came back with the question was, well, why, why would you limit it um, when it was broadly written? Like we put on evidence showing that he could incite other people. And so for the court to come back now and say, no, it just means Roof himself would physically harm people wouldn't be fair. That's not the way that, that we read the mitigating factor. And so we put on um, other evidence of it. And, well, and the they've, they've made the argument, Ms. Adams, that that may have been their mitigating factor, but you hijacked it. Uh, not you personally, but that the, the government hijacked it. The government took that factor and in the course of the, the unfair sandbagging they've accused the government of earlier, indeed misrepresented the state of the record by, by saying that's not true when in fact there was evidence in, uh, about prison conditions that would bear on whether he could be safely confined. So this is this kind of, I take it that their view is this all works together. There's 
there's a failure by the district court to actually engage with the jury when they're confused. It's a confusion that's created in part by the district court's broad ruling that leaves them thinking they can't do something they ought to be able to do. And then it's further compounded by the, by the government saying things that are inaccurate and unfair, or particularly in light of the uh, Judge Gergel's ruling. Now, help us uh, understand uh, why, at least with respect to the jury question and the, and the case that Judge Benton has referred to, I, re I remember that's a civil case but there's a statement that, no, if the jury is clearly confused about something, you're obligated to, to, uh, to help them with that confusion. Why, why are they wrong in saying these things uh, ought to be considered together and when considered together amount to uh, a reversible error? Well, I, I think I'd like to push back on the idea that the government did anything improper here. What the, what you should you should push back on that. Don't assume that we're believing that you did something improper. We may or we may not, right? But but just so you understand, it's clearly understood that you don't think you all did anything wrong. I'm just trying to get you engaged directly with that argument about look at all these things together, judges. Judges, look at it together. Well, I, I'll just point out the, the government's whole discussion of these mitigators is at 6697 and 6698 of the record. The government could hardly have said less about them. It said these mitigators are going to appear on your verdict form, which they were because Roof submitted them and Roof didn't address them. And he's continued to engage in bad behavior in prison. That, that's basically all the government said about this, all of which was correct. And the Roof was submitting those mitigators. And so the government had the authority it had, you know, it could put on um, witnesses to talk about how he was behaving in prison um, in order to to address what, you know, what Ruth might say about them. The government went first. So why, why is it not vouching? They've they've accused you of vouching when when uh, asserting that it's not true that that uh, he could be kept safe in prison. Vouching is about the, you know, the prosecutor. Um, stating that he or she knows that the defendant is guilty or knows that a witness is telling the truth. The prosecutor here, when when using the words true and not true, um, was saying, you know, some of these mitigators are true, like Ruth is, is 21 years old when the offense was committed and had no significant criminal history, et cetera. And then others are not true and followed that up with a, with a description of you know, the other mitigating factors Ruth had submitted on which he presented no evidence, including that he, you know, had the possibility for redemption and these future dangerousness mitigators that we're talking about. When the jury came back with the questions, um, you know, the Ruth, himself submitted the language of these mitigators or his counsel did. And then, you know, he, he went with them during the penalty phase. Um, and, and the first one, uh, he would pose no significant risk of violence to other inmates or prison staff if imprisoned for life. You know, if the district court was going to go back and narrow that based on what Ruth was telling them he wanted them to do, well, that, that just means that I personally wouldn't you know, hit somebody, like I personally wouldn't cause the damage as opposed to inciting other people to act. I mean, that's not what the mitigator said. So the district court certainly didn't have any obligation to come back and say that. What the district court said was, you know, use your common sense, read the read it as written. Um, and and I think what's important to, to point out here is that Roof is telling you that he failed to put on evidence about his good behavior in prison or whatever it was he wanted to put on because of the roots, the court's ruling 
on the motion in limine on those other factors. But in reality, he wasn't planning to put on any evidence at all. That's what his lawyers told us. That's why they were trying to intervene and, and prevent him from representing himself. And it, it's not really until today that I even have a clear understanding of what it was he wanted to present. And if it's evidence that the, the government could intercept or the prison could intercept the letters that he's trying to send or put him in solitary confinement or whatever, then I would assert that absolutely under the harmless error standard of review, um, there is, there's no possibility that the jury could have come to a different conclusion. If he's not going to put on evidence that he was no, behaving- No possibility, no possibility that the jury who sent specific requests out to the court to say, help us understand what this means, future dangerousness. Help us straighten this out. There's no possibility that if that had been responded to, there one juror might have said, you know what, I think this guy's going to be okay. I don't think we have, I don't think he has to die. I think this is somebody who can be kept safely in jail. There's, there's, there's no reasonable prospect of that. No, I, I think the, the confusion that was caused here was caused because Ruth submitted these mitigators and then he put on no evidence in support of them and said nothing about them. Um, it was only the government that was putting on the evidence. And so to the extent that Ruth then said he wanted the mitigator to be narrow, I mean, these were his mitigators. And what he's saying now is, I would have told the jury that, yeah, I'm continuing to misbehave in prison and, and keep up my racist writings and um, you know write letters that say other people um, should take action against Black people. But the government, would, you know, the, the prison would have been able to, to deal with me. Well, I don't think that that's, very mitigating. And I don't think that that would, would change the mind of any juror. This crime was extremely aggravated. It involved months of premeditation, multiple victims, especially vulnerable victims, an intent to incite violence, unimaginable loss to the parishioners' families, Ruth murdered based on racial hate. He targeted a church to magnify his impact and demonstrated a lack of remorse. And so the idea that the court, <coughs> excuse me, should vacate a death sentence based on a dispute about a mitigating factor that Roof made no attempt to prove and that he's telling you today, all, all he would have done was say, yes, I misbehaved myself in prison, but the, the prison can deal with that. Um, I don't think there's, there's any reason to remand this case for a new sentencing hearing based on that argument. How, how do you specifically distinguish, you know, the case I think that both my colleagues are referring to as Price v. Glosson Motor Lines which is the Fourth Circuit case where it says, quote, when the difficulty involved is an issue central to the case, helpful response from the court is mandatory. Well, I think this is not, this is not something that's central to the case for sure. This was a mitigating factor at sentencing that, that Ruth didn't make any um, attempt to prove. Um, if I can find this portion of my brief, I mean, in our standard of review section, we definitely cite cases that say um, that the, you know, the, the district court is not required to go back and, and give further instructions on, uh, on a jury instruction if none is warranted. So here, I mean, I think the, the confusion wasn't caused by anything that the district court did. This was, Ruth wrote the language of this mitigator or his lawyers did. Um, and then he was trying to come back later based on the evidence that had been presented, having made no argument about it at all and presented no evidence about it at all and said, I think you should narrow it from what you said to, to say, it just means that I would have hurt people 
um, in prison and not that I would have incited other people to do that. That and may have been what that may have been what he wanted the instruction to be. But and the district court certainly wasn't obligated to accept Mr. Roof's proposed clarifying instruction. But in light of the language that Judge Gilman has just quoted to you from this price case, was the district court under Fourth Circuit law required to say something more than, I, in effect, I told you what I told you, keep, use your common sense. Was the district court required to give them uh, some uh, further understanding of what future dangerousness means? No, I, I, the, the court that we cite in our brief is United States versus Smith, the decision whether to issue clarification in response to a jury note is reviewed for an abuse of discretion. And here, if the, the clarification would have been, I think um, that no, it, it includes incitement because it's written broadly. And, and you know, the government said that. The government well, there you said go, you've just, you've just given a clarification, right? That's that's the question oh, we're asking is, was, think, the, was the district court required to do the thing you just did? And I if the if district court didn't do that, is that a failure under fourth circuit precedent? No, I think if, if the district court had done that, Ruth would probably be here complaining about that. And Certainly. That the, that's unquestionably that's true. That's their job. Their job is to find stuff to say that's wrong. Uh, but but the issue that you're getting pressed on right now is on an issue that the jury clearly was worried about because they took the time to write a note and ask about it. Uh, is there is there a problem uh, under Fourth Circuit binding precedent, if the district court does nothing more than say, in effect, I told you what I told you. No, I, I think that the Smith case says that that's reviewed for abuse of discretion. Here, it, it was a, a mitigator that Ruth himself wrote. So to the extent that there's any confusion about what it means, that's that's not the district court's fault. It, it's, it's Ruth's fault. Um, and, you know, he didn't put on any evidence about it. The district court saying just go back and read it according to your common sense. Um, you know, I, I think they could they could read it how they want to. Um, and and certainly if the district court had said no, it includes inciting other people or you know trying to incite your his fellow prisoners or sending letters out of the prison. I don't think that that would have been a, a helpful clarification to Ruth. Certainly the district court wasn't will wasn't obligated to make the correction or the clarification that Ruth was asking for, which would have narrowed the mitigator beyond what he had submitted. And you agree if there if there is an error that under the Federal Death Penalty Act, we have to declare it harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. That's correct. And for the Thank reasons you. that I've given, I think this error, um, you know, the, the court shouldn't vacate a death sentence based on a dispute about a mitigating factor that Ruth didn't make any attempt to prove. Um, you know, if there was if, if there was really a dispute about whether he could put on rebuttal evidence that he wanted, you know, the judge said, respond to it. You have a rebuttal. Um, and, and Ruth didn't. And you know, he had four lawyers, four experienced capital lawyers sitting there with him. At, you know, he's free to take their advice or not. Um, but this is a problem that, you know, certainly could have been solved at the time um, with appropriate attention um, from Ruth or from his standby counsel. I don't think there's any chance that the jury would have returned a different verdict if they found that the government could um, could deal with Ruth as he continued to misbehave in prison. Unless the court has further questions, um, you know, we, we believe that no error occurred with respect to Ruth's competency, his self-representation, 
or his penalty proceeding that would warrant reversal of either his convictions or his death sentence. We ask that the, the court affirm on all questions. Um, my my co-counsel is is here prepared to discuss the the uh, guilt phase questions. So I'll let the, the court decide whether you want to hear anything on those. Okay. Well, in that case, thank you, Ms. Adams, and I'll welcome uh, Ms. Robin Vergeer. And uh, Ms. Vergeer, I take it by what your counsel just said, you, uh, you you go ahead and you start your argument. You should begin your argument before I begin directing you. Go ahead. May it please the court. My name is Bonnie Robin Vergeer. I'm here on behalf of the United States. I was planning on addressing the questions grouped together as points related to the guilt verdict. These are Roof's challenges to his convictions under sections 247, 249, and 924C and are covered in the government's arguments, uh, numbers, nine, numbers 15 to the end. Uh, obviously, Roof's counsel has not made an oral presentation on those issues, uh, and so I'm, I'm fully well, flexible here. Well, they, they may not have, but I've certainly got some questions for you on this. Um, so I'm, once, I'm happy to go ahead and. Good. Help me help help us out here with um, this uh, the challenge to 247. Um, the uh, I'm wondering. First off, is it the case that the government uh, has waived any argument under the third um, uh, Lopez factor, the uh, substantially affects prong of Lopez, right? There's, there's three ways you can make your Commerce Clause hook work. Uh, they uh, argued and you engaged on the first two of those Lopez factors, but it didn't appear to me that you had made an argument under that third Lopez prong. And I'm wondering if that, if I've missed something or if in fact you didn't make an argument on that. And if you didn't argue on that, do you agree that you don't have an argument to make because you forfeited it? Let me separate out the facial challenge from the sufficiency of the evidence. In defending the facial validity of the statute, we made arguments under all three prongs. So from that standpoint, <clears throat> we've, we've relied on the substantial effects prong as part of it. Certainly, um, the, the statute could be applied in situations where there'd be a substantial effect in interstate commerce for a activity. With respect to this, with respect to the sufficiency, with respect to the sufficiency of the evidence, the government primarily put in evidence that relates to Lopez prongs one and two. I don't want to say there's nothing that relates to the effects part of the analysis because. Um, well, I, don't, I don't want you to misunderstand my question. Yeah. I didn't ask whether there was any evidence in the record that would support an argument under the third prong. My question to you is, did you make an argument? We did not uh, make an argument regarding the sufficiency of the evidence well, on the substantial. We'll, let's call it what they call it for a minute, okay? The, they're making a, they claim it's a constitutional challenge and that it's an as-applied constitutional challenge. You can call it a sufficiency of the evidence challenge if you like. I'm just going to adopt theirs for the time being, okay? On that as-applied challenge, uh, then I'm hearing you agree that you didn't make any argument that, hey, we can properly go after uh, Mr. Roof 
because what he did, we have evidence in the record to prove that what he did uh, had a substantial effect on interstate commerce. He didn't make that argument. And so you would be foreclosed for making that argument at this point. Have I understood that right? Yes. Good enough. Uh, if, if your honors like me to start there with 247, I'm happy to do that. Sure, I, I would. I would like to. I would um, like to understand why why your reliance on uh, Scarborough uh, doesn't create real problems in light of Lopez and Morrison. Why? Why? Uh, I mean, other judges have said there's some tension there, but you you lean on it on Scarborough very hard, and and, and I take the defense's argument to be. In essence, if that's the rule, then then nothing is beyond the reach of the Commerce Clause. Nothing is beyond the capacity of the federal government to reach in uh, and address with criminal law. So that's that's the argument I would like you to respond to. Okay. The Scarborough part of our argument is just one piece of the argument. Roof committed his offense using a gun, magazines, and ammunition, all of which had moved in interstate commerce. And under Scarborough and cases in the Fourth Circuit applying that precedent, his that places his offense in or affecting commerce. I'm using kind of the whole phrase because Scarborough uses the whole phrase, but that is only one one piece of well, the let's, evidence. Let's stay with it for a second. So your argument is if somebody uses a gun in the commission of a crime anywhere, that's that is a sufficient connection to interstate commerce that no matter what crime is charged, the federal government's got, got a, a hook to come in and take care of it. Well, we're not well, talking well. about the 924C. We're not talking about a gun-focused charge. We're not talking about any gun-focused charge right now. We're talking about the hate crimes and the obstruction of religious liberty crimes. The assertion you're making is you used a gun, the gun in it traveled in interstate commerce. And so your, your terroristic threatening or your um, pick some other thing, you know, you had a gun and that moved in commerce, therefore commerce clause jurisdiction exists. That, is that the government's position? Well, it would depend on the statute at issue. In this particular instance, with the formulation that Congress chose for 247, with the offense being in or affecting commerce, and clear legislative history, and of course, drafting history, because the statute was amended in 1996 for this exact purpose of allowing Congress to punish any conduct that met the offense conduct requirements that fell within its Congress Commerce Clause authority. So this statute would permit Congress to reach a crime that was committed as Roof's was with a gun that is moved and ammunition that is moved in interstate commerce. That doesn't mean every statute that would be the case. It would depend how the jurisdictional element was drafted. And so it's all it's all in how Congress says it. Because what you're what I hear you saying is the limits of the the limits of the commerce clause are such that if a gun travels in interstate commerce, no matter what crime you commit with that gun, there's enough of a connection to interstate commerce that you can be prosecuted federally. Because well, what you're saying is, if it goes to the limits of the Commerce Clause's power and Congress says that, the fact that a gun was involved and it moved in interstate commerce is enough. Well, Scarborough itself 
um, allowed a prosecution for possession and emphasized that there did not need to be any present nexus to interstate commerce, meaning the possession itself doesn't right. have an interstate component. It, because it's, it it's about the gun. And I'm asking you about cases where it's not about the gun. The gun-free school zone, Lopez itself, has to do with guns. Uh, so if there's and, a gun in a gun-free school zone and the travel to interstate commerce, under your logic, Lopez is wrongly decided? No, because Congress subsequently amended the Gun-Free School Zones Act to add um, an interstate commerce element and courts up, then upheld it. And this court, I mean, the Fourth Circuit in the United States versus Hill noted the fact that um, that courts had sort of numerous courts had upheld it after the interstate element was was added. But but I don't want to give the impression. I want to ask the question to you a different way. And, and I think it's a big problem for you. Uh, which is in the religious obstruction statute, and I'm quoting, I think, quote, it's the offense that is in or affects interstate or foreign commerce. The offense. And as you know, that is not the language uh, of the felon in pos possession statute. It says receives, transports, or possesses in commerce or affecting commerce. Does the fact that it says the offense must be in or affecting interstate or foreign commerce does that make this different, period? It doesn't. And this question regarding the offense is discussed in the 11th Circuit's en banc decision in Ballinger. What Congress was getting after wasn't that the ultimate act in Ballinger is igniting a church here. It's, of course, you know, shooting all the victims at the church. That the ultimate act isn't the, is not the only thing that is the offense, but it's the indispensable steps that lead up to it and in the committee report and the statement of floor managers, um, they made this clear that as amended, 247B is satisfied whenever in committing, planning, or preparing to commit the offense, the defendant travels in interstate com or foreign commerce or uses the mail or facility or instrumentality. They didn't enact that language, though, did they, counsel? I'm sorry? Congress did not enact the words that you just read to us, right? No, but, but the offense part has to include more than the exact moment or the whole point of amending the statute in 1996 would have, would have been undermined because that was the precise problem Congress was addressing in, in amending the statute. But I just want to back up for a second. I understand the court's pushing back on, on, on the gun aspect of this, but we have so many examples of the ways Roof used the channel's instrumentalities of interstate commerce to commit this offense. And certainly taken together, um, they they meet the jurisdictional element. And I just want to go back and cover some of these because the gun is just one piece of our whole argument. Roof used the internet to research churches in Charleston with predominantly black congregations and identified right. mother. So, so any use of the internet, no matter temporally in time, how far apart it may have been from the offense is enough for a jurisdictional hook? Well, no, I, I wouldn't go that far. But here, he used the then, internet. Then, and... then where where would we draw the where would we draw the line? If somebody if somebody got on the internet and and wanted to do a search to to find you know I don't know uh, gasoline cans because they were going to make a homemade bomb, uh, and then six months later they went across the street 
and planted a bomb at a restaurant that they were angry at, would you say they used the internet, ergo, a use of instrumentality of interstate commerce? This is not purely a local crime. This is something that could be charged federally. I think you'd have to look at all the facts of the case to figure out how integral or important or indispensable that particular use of the channel's instrumentalities was. Here, that we don't really have to speculate about that. We know the website that Roof went to. He researched what black, the black churches that were in Charleston. He identified his target as Mother Emanuel. There's no speculating here about what the connection is. He also used his home telephone to call Mother Emanuel beforehand. He used his cars in the interstate highway system to scout out Mother Emanuel on six different occasions before the crime. And then let me, let me ask you that. Out. Let's talk on that, that for a minute, too. Uses the car, gets on the highway. Any use of a car, you get in your car and you're in an instrumentality of interstate commerce. You're under the control of the federal government. Is that the government's position? No, but if you use your car to bring yourself to a church in order to kill people in violation of the statute, then, um, then yes, that, that would be good enough. I mean, for Why? example- Why? I mean, I understand the crime is a horrific crime. That's not really the issue. What we're grappling with here is just the, the dry technical question of how far is the government's power reach under the Commerce Clause? And is the government's position really, you got in your car- cars are an instrumentality of interstate commerce, you're now within the government's, the federal government's reach to regulate uh, criminally. If you use your car in furtherance of a, of a statute and the interstate element covers it, then then yes. And this is not breaking So then there's back. nothing. There's, I mean, there are probably some good walking cities in America, but so now you're saying anytime somebody gets in a vehicle they are now within the limits of the Commerce Clause, and, and that's something that can be then regulated by criminal statute by the federal government. Your Honor, let me just point you for, for just an example, because this is really not breaking new ground. United States versus Mandel in the Seventh Circuit, that involved the interstate, intrastate use of a car in furtherance of a murder-for-hire scheme. And the court held that that was within Congress's power to reach. We're not talking about attenuated uses. These are indispensable steps, almost but for causes. Well, they'd always the they'd always be indispensable under that under that logic. They're always indispensable, right? Because you could always say, well, it was a ten mile drive to get there. It was ten miles all within the same state, but it was a ten mile drive. Nobody's going to walk there to shoot their victim. They're going to get in a car and go to shoot their victim. Therefore, every murder is now you know, or every assault or every threatened assault is now subject to federal regulation as a crime. What, what, do we, what do we make of that in light of Morrison and Lopez, where the Supreme Court seems to be saying, hey, the federal government's got a lot of reach, but it doesn't have in, illimitable reach. The Commerce Clause does have a limit. Morrison and Lopez did not involve a jurisdictional element. They were just regulations of conduct with no case-by-case -case assessment of whether the interstate commerce nexus was present. Here, we have a jurisdictional element and the, the types of uses that we're talking about here, courts have routinely held, this is not novel in any way, have held that these instrumentalities and channels of interstate commerce can be sufficient to tie 
the conduct, the offense conduct, the evil that Congress was getting at and tie it so that there's federal authority. I mean, just, just I, want, I can't do justice to this point because there's so many examples, but let me just rattle off a few. Uh, threats by use of instrumentalities of interstate commerce like telephones have been upheld even though the telephone calls were intrastate. For example, United States versus Quorum and United in the um, Eighth Circuit, United States versus Gilbert in the First Circuit. Convictions for the receipt of child pornography through the internet have been upheld, regardless of whether the images cross state lines. And all of these things in in each of these instances, and and we've seen your briefing on this, in each of these instances, the, the, uh, the, the object of the offense could not have been accomplished without the use of these things, as you've pointed out. And indeed, the object of the offense was was to use these things. You couldn't have transmitted the child pornography without these things, uh, uh, unless, you know, in, in the modern world. Um, but, but this seems to, is there no difference here when, uh, when, the, uh, when the assertion is, here's a person in South Carolina who commits a terrible crime in South Carolina, and, and, and that's, you know, he's gotta get in a car to do it and he does it, uh, but, but that's not, you don't see a, a logical distinction or a, a legally significant distinction between that and somebody who is transmitting pornography over the internet because, and that internet is the jurisdictional basis. No, no. The Supreme Court has made clear the substantive elements of federal statutes describe the evil Congress seeks to prevent while the jurisdictional elements tie the law to one of Congress's enumerated powers. If you contrast the way, basically what Congress wanted to do in 247B is list every possible way um, a crime could be committed in or affecting interstate commerce and to make sure that that's covered and that that, um, the federal government could prosecute the offense conduct if that's true. And rather than list them, say, don't use the channels and instrumentalities of interstate commerce when you commit this type of offense. Don't engage in activity that affects um, interstate commerce when you do this offense. Don't use a weapon that's crossed state lines previously to commit this offense, which is sort of the way the hate crimes interstate commerce portion of 249A2, how that's drafted with list. So Congress doesn't have to do it that way. Congress instead deliberately chose to use a formulation interaffecting interstate commerce that had come to mean over time through Supreme Court case law as covering the gamut. If Congress could reach it, this statute reaches it. And well, so explain to me what we're to make of this language from Morrison then. This court has rejected a but-for causal chain from the initial occurrence of violent crime to every attenuated effect upon interstate commerce. If accepted, this reason would allow Congress to regulate any crime whose nationwide aggregated impact has substantial effects, et cetera. But Morrison was evaluating a regulation of crime in the absence of a jurisdictional element. And so it's sort of looking at the whole picture, going through the analysis and trying to figure out whether or not there was a sufficient regulation of commerce, sufficient either whether it's economic or substantial and so on. But here understood. we, we understood. could deal I'm with just it case to, by case. I'm just trying to get you to respond to that specific language. This court has rejected a but-for causal chain from the initial occurrence of violent crime to uh, every possible effect. 
because because then everything is commerce clause. Now, where where how is what you're arguing different from that kind of but for causal chain? It's not an attenuated but for causal chain like you had in those cases where you have to follow this whole string of steps to try to come up with how you would have the crime affecting interstate commerce. It's quite direct. He used the Internet and found his target. He got in his car and he drove on interstate highways in order to get to the church, in order to kill people there. He used a GPS device and satellites Council, to navigate. Council, does the record there. does the record reflect how late, how right up the time he entered the doors of the church, he used GPS or not? Well, the the GPS shows when he stopped. I mean, it it shows. I want to say that he stopped the car somewhat 20 minutes or so before he got out and actually entered the church. So there's GPS data all the way up to the point where he basically parked the car in the church. So there's no attenuated- so 20 minutes, 20 minutes least, before? What? 20 want, minutes before? I, I, I want to say 7.48 PM is the time that jumps out my mind, but I probably have to yeah, go back and absolutely double check it. But I think it was about 20 minutes before he entered it. 8 16 p.m. or so Thank so you. you don't have this attenuated this leads to this leads to this to get to your final you have this direct use of instrumentalities and channels that are a but for um enabler facilitating the commission of the crime and it's it's very much in keeping with a whole host of other uh, congress's power to punish mail fraud even the mailing is only interstate there's just a wide range of examples where the channels and instrumentalities are the vehicle, the means, and that is what allows Congress to exercise its authority to reach um, those offenses. Um, obviously, the time is going through, and so if there aren't more questions specifically on, on, on Section 247, I'd like to have a chance to at least cover let me ask you one quite area that, that troubles me a bit, the certification question. You know, what, what uh, you know, it has to be in the public interest and, uh, you know, to uh, further, uh, uh, you know, vindicate a public interest to certify under either of these acts, hate crime or the religious obstruction. Um, and, you know, the attorney general did it, but, you know, in this case, South Carolina had already indicted Mr. Roof, was seeking the death penalty for these murders. Uh, and supposedly uh, the legislative history says, well, the purpose of these acts is to ensure appropriate deference to state and local prosecution uh, and to assume jurisdiction for any reason that unless they are unable or unwilling to secure a conviction. So what's the justification in these cases for the federal government to in effect jump ahead of the state here? Well, two things, Your Honor. First, there's a preliminary question about the reviewability of the Attorney General's assessment that the prosecutions in the public interest are necessary to secure substantial justice. We don't think it's subject to judicial review. The Fourth Circuit has a decision, juvenile mal number one, that the Roof team relies on. Um, that's regarding a different statute for juvenile offenses. We don't think it should be extended beyond its, its, uh, its context. The Fourth Circuit's an outlier, the only circuit to hold the certification in the juvenile justice area to be judicially reviewable. So, so our first point is, the, is that the question just isn't reviewable, period. 
assuming that it's reviewable, the certifications here ought to be valid. I mean, in juvenile mail, the court found a sufficient federal interest in prosecuting a juvenile who allegedly committed six particularly egregious felonies involving carjacking and murder. We are way past that here. The federal interest in prosecuting hate crimes like Mr. Roof's um, is at its zenith in terms of the gravity and aggravation of the offense um, and the civil rights violations at issue here. The attorney general is entitled to make what's sort of a quintessential call from a standpoint of prosecutorial discretion to decide that it's in, it, that it's in the federal interest to proceed here. Is the justiciability, sorry. That, that the South Carolina did not have a hate crime statute. Well, that's also true. That is a separate basis on which the 249 certification was submitted. Was that South Carolina did not have a hate crime, uh, sort of, uh, did not have a hate crime law? Right, but why was it in the public interest, say, on the religious obstruction? Because ahead of the, what South Carolina was doing. Because this went to the core of the kind of crime and offense that Congress wanted that Congress enacted and then amended the church arson statute to address this type of highly aggravated um, obstruction of justice because, I'm sorry, obstruction of religious exercise because of the, the race of the people who are in there, just basically try to start a race war. And going back, well, we didn't get to the, sec the constitutionality arguments about section 249, but you know, keep in mind the context in which this is arising. One of the badges and incidents of slavery was that white people had the power to commit acts of violence against black people with impunity. And as part of maintaining a system of white supremacy and Dylan Roof shot and killed nine black people at Mother Emanuel because they were black. And he did so for the declared purpose of reestablishing white supremacy. That was the chief badge of slavery in America. If that isn't a sufficient federal interest for the government to come in here and prosecute this case, it's hard to think of what a stronger interest would be. Well, I can understand a little more on the Hate Crime Act, <clears throat> which is what you're talking about. I guess, what about the religious obstruction? Well, let me first point out that Roof actually didn't challenge the certification under 247 um, in the district court. So that issue would be reviewed for, for plain error at most. But I, I think the, the interest here, they merged. This was one offense that once one aggravated crime that violated both the hate crime statute and the religious obstruction statute. And it wasn't any reason to bring one part of the case and not the other. It's a whole package of egregious conduct that the Justice Department ought to be able to come in and bring a case like this. If it can't bring this case, then, then we've basically sort of thrown these the statutes in, into the dustbin for purposes of, of being able to move forward on the most important examples of violations of these of these statutes. If if I, I may, I don't know if- Wait, the, I got, I'm sorry, I got a quick question. This is a uh, on this point. Uh, you said it's not, something that's reviewable at all. Are you saying that it's not justiciable as a matter of constitutional law, as an Article Three matter, or as a prudential matter? And I'm asking that because if we, if we felt that your argument on the merits was good, but we wondered about your, your justiceability argument, uh, given certain Fourth Circuit precedent, 
are we are we entitled to assume without deciding it's justiciable and hit the merits or are we on a constitutional bind because this is an article three point i think it's a prudential point there there really aren't criteria by which to judge to make the judgment about whether the attorney general is right or wrong about whether the prosecution's in the public interest and is necessary to secure substantial justice let There's me no ask this question can, can I ask the question a different way, the way I think about it, uh, which is the United States Supreme Court has said we don't have hypothetical Article III jurisdiction, clearly, many times, period. But, but uh, Judge Jordan points out that if it's just a question of not Article III, but prudential or whatever you want to say, case made law, whatever you want to call it, then we might have jurisdiction to even look at it. Where do you... Would you reply to that point? We haven't raised a jurisdictional objection. Um, it's just that this court or this panel ought to follow the leads of all the other circuits and all the other courts that have held that to the certifications under 247 and 249 are not reviewable. It's not bound to extend juvenile mail to this different context. But even if you do decide to reach the merits of it, I think the easily the attorney general's um, certifications pass muster. Um, I see my time is nearly up. I want to say something about the 924C, um, the crimes of violence argument. And let me just first, just because we didn't have a chance to respond to this before, I want to quickly address a new argument that Ruth made in his reply brief regarding the, um, the 924C counts with respect to the predicate for 247. Recall there's two predicates here. We only need one. The 247 and the 249 convictions are each, the ones resulting in death, are each predicates. And Ruth but made a new argument. What happens, what happens if we say, we don't think you've, you've made out a case for uh, federal jurisdiction uh, under uh, those uh, uh, obstruction of, of uh, religious observance statutes. Uh, you know, hypothetically, we said we, we're, we're troubled by that. We don't think those stand. Uh, but the 924C uh, object, uh, convictions also have this hate crimes predicate. Are we, are we entitled to say, well, there's still a predicate, so you're okay? Yes, and in fact, the jury was specifically instructed that it had to be unanimous on one or the other of the crimes of violence or on both, and there's a special verdict form, and the jury indicated that it found both predicates beyond reasonable doubt unanimously, the 247 and the 249 predicates, so the court certainly could rely on just the 249 predicate um, for the crime of violence. Just to get to I got another one for you. I know you. I know you have things you want to say, and I hope my colleagues won't mind me using your last ten seconds here. And maybe we'll give you some more. Um, what's the practical effect? Again, assume just for the sake of discussion that we thought there's a problem with the the religious uh, obstruction of religious observance counts uh, 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 on the jurisdictional hook, and so they can't stand. Would would this have to go back for another penalty phase hearing? No, it would not. And we addressed that point. We actually addressed the flip side of that point because Ruth argued that if the firearms convictions were thrown out, we need a new penalty hearing right. on the 247 right. death eligible counts. But the same argument we made, this is the very end of the brief, applies in reverse 
Either way, Roof would not be entitled to a new penalty phase hearing because the district court in, in its charge and the sentencing verdict form explicitly instructed the jury to consider each capital count separately and the jury did. So there's no need, they're not tainted. The Tucker and Johnson line of cases that they rely on where the defendant's sentences rested on tainted um, convictions, um, that doesn't apply here because the jury made an independent assessment on appropriateness of recommending a death sentence on every count. And so there would be no need to send it back for a new penalty, penalty hearing. Do we on that, and I'm going to take some time, do we on that have to make a separate beyond a reasonable doubt finding as a court or not? No, there's no, there's, it's not a harmlessness question. It's, it's just that the jury, it's just a separate inquiry that the jury was instructed. Well, there'd be an error. There'd be an error under, under the hypothetical judge Jordan gave you, if I understood it, there would be an error that the, that the jury heard all about and was given forms on obstruction of religious exercise. That's an error way back there. I get it. And then you're trying to say, well, they were given a separate form to fill out. Do we have to add under the Federal Death Penalty Act, do we have to add a beyond a reasonable doubt finding of our own? I don't think so, but I may not be understanding whether your question no, is going I, to the 924C part of it. If, if your question is, does the fact that the 247 convictions would be thrown out and now we're, we're asking whether Ruth should be sentenced to death still under 924 C and J based on the hate crimes predicate offense. If that's the question, right. we already have a properly instructed jury that was told that it needed to, that it needed to make a determination on all of the, the steps of the analysis mm -hmm. under the FDPA for every single count. So they've already recommended death as an appropriate punishment under the 924C count. So there's plenty of nothing that needs to be gone back and redone because and your it's already been done. Your answer's, your answer's clearly no. Okay. But, but uh, as a follow-up here real quickly, how, how would that answer the, the defense argument? And I assume this would be an argument, you know, they'll speak for themselves that you can't, hey, wait, you can't untangle and know that there would have been a conviction on that 924C count uh, if the only evidence that had been presented were the hate crimes piece, not the uh, not argument and evidence associated with the uh, obstruction of religious observance. And therefore, you would have to say it's harmless beyond a reasonable doubt to let that each of those 924C counts stand because them, the jury hearing the evidence uh, on those first set of counts, religious obstruction counts, did not affect their decision-making with respect to the hate crimes and the 924C. Certainly, if the court thinks that there is um, any question about whether there could be prejudice on it, it the, any error on the, on the 247 counts would be harmless beyond a reasonable doubt in terms of the jury's consideration of the 924C count. Basically, the jury was told that there's two possible crimes of violence that it could find as a basis for, and then it, what the jury had to find was that the use of the firearm was during and in relationship to either one or the other of the crimes of violence or both, and they had to be unanimous. They couldn't mix and match. And so given that instruction and given the boxes that the jury checked, 
I think we could safely assume that there would that any error regarding the 247 convictions would be harmless beyond reasonable doubt with respect to 924C counts, and there wouldn't be a need to repeat the penalty hearing. And I, obviously, I realize my time has has elapsed, but if I could just quickly point out the one point that they raise as a new argument in the reply brief that I wanted to just quickly respond to because Council, we didn't Council, have a chance. You better, since, since we're way over time, you'd better do that in a 28J letter if, if uh, in response to a new argument in the reply brief because okay. we are a, a little over time on that. I know I know it was our time, but it is the court's time. Okay. So I, don't, I won't apologize too much, but I will give you the 28J escape clause. Uh, and then, then uh, thank you for your argument. It's very helpful. And we're back to Mr. Uh, uh, excuse me, Ms. Merchandani. Um, your Honors, um, if the court is interested in hearing more about the the issues that um, you were just asking about, could uh, we reserve ten minutes of our fifteen minute rebuttal time for Ms. Farrand to address? the Commerce Clause well, issues? Well, uh, yes, we'll give her five minutes. That's how long we went over with her. So we'll have Mr. Farron for five minutes at the end. And okay. then whatever time the judges want after that. Okay. Um, okay. And I, I only have a few points to make. So if I have remaining time, if I could cede it to Ms. Farron, I would I would like to do that. Um, no, no, we gave her five clear minutes. But go ahead, keep, you need to talk. Okay, okay, thanks. Um, during the opening argument, there was a lot of discussion about clear error and Anton and Wooden, which again, the government was unable to really distinguish how this case is different because it's not because there was substantial contrary evidence ignored. But I want to bring the court back to what I started with, which was the focus should really be on the legal error, which the government clearly admits is what happened, the legal error of blocking four mental health reports from the second hearing using the law of the case doctrine. Now, the government admitted it was legal error. And for prejudice, they say it wasn't prejudicial because the reports had nothing to do with Mr. Roos' change in competency between November and January. And I want to say that the, the change in competency is not what the statute says to look at. The statute 4241A says, is the is the defendant presently suffering from a mental disease or defect? And well, isn't that, isn't that inherent in what uh, Judge Gergel was saying to you, which is, if you've got something to tell me, he said, I told, I decided in November, he's competent. And if you've got something new to say, to show he's not competent now, go ahead. I want to hear it. But if all, if all you're doing is giving me a, additional stuff to say, no, no, reconsider what you said before, because you're wrong, because here's more information about stuff in the past. And we want you to look at that now. What's wrong with him saying to you, I'm, you don't get a do-over. We did it. Now give me some new information because new information is what's relevant to whether he's competent now. Well, the statute doesn't have time limits on when or when things are relevant. It says- does So person... hold on just a second. So your, your legal position is the, the, the statute is, has inherently in it a requirement for reconsideration anytime defense counsel want to come forward and say, I got something more I want to say. No, no, not at all. I'm That's saying- That's what it sounds like. No, it, it, let me clarify, please. 4241A says, is the person presently suffering from a mental disease or defect? 4247C1 says, important to that consideration is the person's history, okay? So you come to, to our case and in November, the court was presented with as much evidence as counsel could muster in the 14 days they had. 
And the court was not convinced. At the second hearing, five, five weeks later, which the court granted because there was additional evidence of incompetency that came out during trial, um, at that point, the question remains, is he presently suffering from a mental disease or defect that makes him incompetent? There is not a time limit on it. And the, the, the government makes no mention of San Gerard, Arendis, um, which are not four circuit cases, but are competency cases in which second hearings were held and the cumulative evidence was considered. They so but hold, hold on a second. So you're, I really do want to, I'm not trying to play verbal games with you. I really want to understand what the legal position you're taking is. Yes. Because it, it sounds like what you're saying is anytime a defense lawyer says there's more information, it's historical information that we didn't put before you before. We didn't, and whether that's because you didn't have enough time or whatever it is, but it's this is historical information. It's not information that's new. It's not anything that's developed between the last hearing and this hearing. There's just more we want to tell you about his background, that the statute entitles you to have the court go back and look at that again. Because anytime you come up with something more you want to say, that bears on competency now, and the court is obligated to give you additional reconsideration. No. If I misunderstood you? Yes. Okay, the well first, then help me out. Okay, the first point is that you're never entitled to a competency hearing. You have to show reasonable cause to believe that you're presently suffering from a mental disease or defect that makes you incompetent. The judge agreed in January, in de late December, that there was new evidence that showed that he was presently incompetent. Now, this was not a do-over. We were not asking for a do-over, but it happened to be that at the January hearing, information that could not have been provided before. That doesn't mean he was entitled to it. That doesn't mean every case is a redo. It means that once the court has the question before it, the legal question, the there is not a time limit. And both in, in San Gerard and Arendis and the Fourth Circuit in Percy, which is a 1985 Fourth Circuit case, you redo a competency hearing by considering all the evidence that's presented. There's no cutoff for time. The question before the court isn't, has his competency changed? It is whether he is incompetent, period. And the statute says you have to look at the history. And at the first hearing, his history couldn't be presented because Dr. Lofton was overseas. The report that she presented, along with others, was nearly 200 pages of reports that went directly to his current competency. And for the court to block it, which the government agrees was a legal error, that is by itself an abuse of discretion. So we asked the court to remedy that error by vacating the death sentence and remanding his case to the district court for a retrospective competency hearing based on the full record as it was presented at the time. Thank you, Ms. Merchandati. I took that as an end of argument. Be sure I read your, yes. I, did, I think I read it correctly. Yes. Okay, Ms. Yates, you have rebuttal time. Thank you, Your Honor. Um, first, a couple points on the McCoy issue. Um, the government suggested that the pre-McCoy paradigm uh, that, that the dissent in McCoy laid out, um, that this is something that works just fine and, and that there's no, no concern about that paradigm here, um, which of course is a different paradigm. The Smith versus Stein case tells us that McCoy did shift the balance. But I think it's important to focus on what that paradigm resulted in here, because what happened here was a complete and utter breakdown in the adversarial process. You know, before you go further, I just want you to respond to something, okay? Yes. Two things that were said specifically that I would like to hear your answer to. Yes. One was, you weren't sandbagged. You knew what was going on. And in fact, the defense 
must have understood that uh, uh, evidence associated with him being in prison was permissible because you made a representation of evidence of that character that you intended to put in to evidence. Now, it ended up that it didn't get put in evidence, but there was a representation that was going to be put in, and that representation was made after the district court made the ruling that you complained about so strongly here. So there, your, your assertions of surprise and shock are not to be believed. That's the first thing I'd like you to respond to. And the second is that uh, even on your terms, uh, this would be harmless beyond a reasonable doubt because had it been put in front of the jury the way you described, the, uh, the response is, yeah, he's misbehaving and that can't be controlled because even if you can stop mail going out, even if you put him in solitary confinement, prisoners communicate and his racist, vile, hateful ideology is intended to incite violence and would incite violence. So would you respond to those two points? Yes, Your Honor. So on the question of future dangerousness, what the government's citing to is record excerpt uh, 5251. Um, and, and, and respectfully, I think that... Um, I would characterize what's said there differently from how the government characterized it. Um, what the council said there, and this was council, uh, standby council making a motion. It is not one that Mr. Roof endorsed. In fact, he was opposed to them making this motion at the time. But what they said was that um, they intended to present significant evidence in mitigation, including uh, expert testimony about Mr. Roof's good behavior uh, in pretrial detention, and based on that, his likely future as a nonviolent and compliant prisoner uh, if he was not sentenced to death, uh, and why he could thus be safely managed. But then there's a footnote, Your Honor, and the footnote says, um, we would also, but for the court's order in the, the, that we are referring to, proper expert testimony of the conditions of confinement the defendant would face in either state or federal custody by this right. expert. And their, and their assertion is, Judge, you have to read that in context, because in context, what that means is, He's going to be an object of uh, violence himself, and he can't be safe. And this all goes back to the motion in limine. It has nothing to do with future dangerousness. The future dangerousness is the stuff above the line, not the footnote. Why isn't that a fair reading of the record? Well, because that, Mr. Roof told us otherwise, right? When this happened, when this issue was raised, this incitement by mail issue, which I don't think is a, a, a fair inference from the evidence that was actually presented at trial, when this issue was suddenly raised in summation, Mr. Roof immediately spoke up and said, Judge, this isn't fair. I, I wasn't able to present this based on your order. Um, and then defense counsel then comes in and says, that's correct. And we need this curative instruction and, uh, and, and uh, seeks relief. Um, that doesn't, I apologize, but that doesn't seem to me to be addressing the point. The point that the government is making is not what Mr. Roof argues after the fact, but that his defense team said before the fact and after the judge's ruling, we're going to put on evidence and it's evidence that bears on prison conditions. So they knew they could do it. So when you say nobody knew we could do it, there's record evidence there that says, no, they knew they could do it. What, what's the response to that? Well, I guess I, I'm, I'm not sure what they're pointing to other than the excerpt that I just read, which expresses the court's order bars us from, from no. presenting conditions of confinement evidence. Well, maybe we're talking past each other, but it looked to me and it sounded to me like their argument was that below the line argument spoke yeah. specifically to one thing and one thing only. Can he be safe in prison? 
will he be the target of violence in prison? But that they understood the more general question of future dangerousness would involve evidence associated with prison conditions. And they said they were going to put evidence on about it. They said they had an expert. They were ready to talk about it. They just didn't do it. Now, if you read the document that way, how do you get traction with the argument you're making now? Well, I, I, I don't think that the document can fairly be read that way. At least it is ambiguous. Um, to the extent it's ambiguous, this is really a harmless error argument that that would fall on the government, right? About no harm, no foul, this wouldn't have been presented anyways, I think is effectively the argument. Um, but aside from that, um, the order was issued after this litigation back and forth about whether it was relevant to future dangerousness. And the court apparently wasn't persuaded enough by that back and forth to issue an order that um, that was more specific. It issued an order that very squarely, um, let me get to the exact language, because it very clearly, it wasn't this kind of speculative order. Um, it said he cannot present evidence of the BOP's inmate classification and designation process, initial and going reality excuse me, reevaluations, services, programs, conditions of confinement, et cetera. It was quite specific what he could not present. I think any reasonable reading of that order on its plain language, and then especially in light of the context that came before it, where the parties were litigating the relevance of this particular type of evidence to future dangerousness, is that the order precluded that evidence. But your honors, um, sticking with the, the issue of future dangerousness, if I may, um, to the harmless error point, um, the, the government um, made some references to some issues that this just is not about, right? This is not about his good behavior in prison. That was not disputed. Uh, this is not about whether he was going to incite others within the prison to violence. All of the evidence was that he was a loner. This is about the government's 11th hour argument that he would incite others to violence through use of the males, right? Well, they, when you say through the use of the males, they, they did make that argument. But uh, are you saying that their their argument that he could incite violence was restricted to that, that when they talked about future dangerousness, they, there was no reference or fair inference from their argument that they meant, no, this guy will cause trouble. He'll cause trouble. He will well, incite no. violence. And that includes violence within the prison walls, whether or not a letter ever makes it outside the prison or not. That would, I think the jury's questions indicate that they were concerned about incitement through the mail, at least with respect to factor nine. With respect to factor eight, I, I suppose it could be read more broadly. The court itself said it didn't read that more broadly, that it thought the best reading of that factor was that it was simply about personally committing violence. Of, of course, nobody told the jury. And so this gets to the question that, that, that the court was focused on about these um, juror questions, right? Because this is a separate and independent problem that we have here. And this court, uh, although it is an abuse of discretion standard, this court in the Price case very clearly did say that when jurors express confusion on an issue uh, that is uh, of, of importance, a, a central issue in the case, then it is mandatory to give a how do we How do we square that with the abuse of discretion standard that there's plenty of language in Fourth Circuit cases says should apply in this context too. Sure. And the uh, fact they point out price is an old case, hasn't ever been followed, has never been cited again, et cetera, et cetera. How do, how do we deal with that? 
Well, I don't think the fact that it's an old case makes it non-binding. But I, as I read the cases, the standard is abuse of discretion in that uh, the court has discretion over how to respond. And if it's perhaps a tangential issue or something that is not uh, that there's not clear confusion on, perhaps whether to respond. But Price very clearly says when they express confusion on an issue that is central, uh, it is a mandatory requirement to respond. And then we've also cited the Southwell case out of the Ninth Circuit, which held that it is an abuse of discretion to fail to answer a question when it is not fairly resolved by the instructions. So abuse of the discretion is the standard, but here the court abused its discretion by not answering the question at all. Um, I, did the court want me to address the McCoy issue? I don't I see I'm over my time. a request for that. Now, if I understood earlier, thank you for your argument, Ms. Yates. You thank you, Your Honor. That. Uh, but if I understood my uh, colloquy earlier with Ms. Uh, Merchandani, Ms. Farron, you have requested five minutes. You, you've been on standby throughout this case. You've requested five minutes in rebuttal to the government's argued argument about the uh, uh, merits issue, whatever you want to call it. That's correct, Your Honor. Thank you. And good afternoon, Your Honor. Um, Margaret Aaron. Thank you. Um, I'd like to address a couple of points uh, regarding the argument uh, in our brief that Section 247A2 is unconstitutional. I've applied to Mr. Roof because there was insufficient evidence of an interstate nexus here. The government's relying on two bases. I'd like to address both of them. First, they say that his offense was in interstate commerce because he, before the offense, he used various sort of ubiquitous um, instrumentalities like highways, the internet, and a telephone, um, and sort of a, they're sort of trying to broaden the nature of the offense here beyond what the statute 247A2 defines. Um, I want to address the government's claim that because Section 247 is trying to extend to the limits of Congress's Commerce Clause power, it therefore is enabled to use fewer words or to provide less explanation of exactly how the conduct relates to interstate commerce. That's precisely the opposite. When in the Ballinger panel opinion um, and the three-judge three panel opinion and also the dissent from the en banc opinion, um, it's addressed that actually when Congress is going out to the limits of its con commerce clause power, it needs to be more clear. Um, Let's just stick with this, though, please, on the limited time we got. Assume we thought, okay, Congress meant to and wanted to get to the very limit of its commerce clause powers. Is, is what happened here, what was alleged and proved sufficient under Lopez 1 and 2, because they've acknowledged they didn't make any Lopez 3 argument. Is it sufficient to provide the jurisdictional hook for the 247 counts? Not under this statute, Your Honor. The question of Congress's intent and its power are not separate inquiries. The Lopez um, Fifth Circuit opinion talks about this. Congress has to be clear to invade state prerogatives to this extent. Um, no, I'm not. I, I'm not being clear. So let me try to be clear. I, I'm not asking you to assume Congress. We thought Congress was clear. Okay, <laughs> assume Congress was clear and they've gone to the limits. Is what was proved here enough under the law to say, yeah, that's within that far out of reach of the Commerce Clause? No, that it ends. Was, no, it wasn't, Your Honor, because under Lopez and Morrison, the one principle that holds through all of these cases is we cannot destroy any limits between what is local and what is federal. And to say that these uh, ubiquitous uses of highways, the telephone, a GPS, I don't think anyone nowadays navigates without a GPS system. I don't think anyone travels basically anywhere without using a car. Um, I don't think we find out almost any type of information nowadays without using a computer. Um, almost all of our social interaction takes place over the computer. And I, I mean, I don't hesitate to point out we're actually doing that right now. 
Um, so I, I don't think that that is, uh, I don't think that these kinds of everyday ubiquitous uses um, bring him within the scope of the Commerce Clause. And if they do, then there is no more limit because there could be um, a murder in, inter in interstate commerce, an assault in interstate commerce, these core state law crimes that implicate um, just the very heart of state sovereign authority over their criminal law um, are now all going to be subject to federal regulation simply because of the everyday uses of these channels that we all make. Um, and if your honors don't mind, I'd like to address the Scarborough, Scarborough point um, for a second too. Um, you know, the government is, as your honors pointed out, I think they're saying that Scarborough um, justifies, it, it sort of provides a basis for federal regulation, not only of the gun market, but of now of any intrastate crime that's committed with a gun, which is a, just a huge leap. That is really a huge leap not supported by really any of the cases. I think it's telling the cases they cite are felon in possession cases. Scarborough was not just a case about gun possession. It was about a specific type of gun possession that's very heavily and specifically regulated um, by Congress and the, uh, the Omnibus Crime Control Safe Streets Act. Um, it's gun possession by felons. That is a type of gun possession. Well, let, let me let me interrupt you. We understand that, but you've got a few seconds left. What what would the effect be if we agree if we actually agreed with you and we said these obstruction of religious observance counts can't stand? You've heard uh, uh, counsel for the government uh, say it it doesn't have any effect because the the structure of the jury uh, verdict sheet here required the the uh, jury to, to make independent findings with respect to each and every count and the 924C counts still stand and there's a predicate for them in the Hate Crimes Act and therefore, you know, uh, Mr. Roof's death penalty uh, decision is just as real with or without those uh, 247 counts. What's your response to that? Your Honor, I strongly, I strongly disagree. And it's the government's burden to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that not even one juror's verdict as to these counts would have been different. If the religious obstruction counts are out, that means half of the capital counts are invalid and half the predicates for the remaining capital counts are now also invalid. And we don't know which predicate the jurors relied on. Um, and although, as the government pointed out, they were instructed to find death separately as to each count, um, they, on the guilt phase verdict form, answered specific questions as to each one of these 247A2 counts. Um, they went through each one individually, and then at the penalty verdict, they actually only answered one question as to all of them. They said, we, the jury, unanimously find for all the capital counts uh, that death is the appropriate sentence. So the reality of it is they made a uh, determination that all of the counts warranted death. You cannot separate it out. The government cannot prove beyond a reasonable doubt that not even one juror's vote would have been different. Okay. Thank you for your argument. Judge Jordan, did you get an answer there? Good, thank you. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, that concludes the argument in this case. So case number 17-3, United States of America versus Dylan Stormroof, is submitted for decision by this court. This honorable court stands adjourned, sign a die. God save the United States and this honorable court. Thank you.